This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show law enforcement officer elite endurance athlete and the author of Gray Man, Brett Sabreski. Now, in this amazing conversation, we discuss a host of topics from growing up with a law enforcement father, his own journey into policing, joining the SWAT team, the concept of the Gray Man, how running became integral in his physical and mental health, his road into the ultra endurance space, addiction, drug prohibition, Wolf Brigade training with Greg Walsh, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brett Sabreski. Enjoy. Brett, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and uh, being a little patient because I had to go to the grocery store as we have a kind of hurricane bearing down on us, which usually is a little bit more of a challenge in Florida when that happens. Um, so being uh, patient with me and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, so glad to be here, man. It's, it's great to, to get out here. Now, who is it that connected us? Um, I, it was uh, Greg Walsh from the, the great, great Wolf Brigade gym in Rochester, New York. That was the common thread. 
That's right. And it's sad because I, I was trying to work out who it was. And I realized the reason I couldn't was Greg is uh, was on Instagram and they shut down all his pages, which is absolute insanity. All he's putting out is good information. I would I would argue not very, uh, you know, extreme information by any reason. And I think they shut everything down. Zero violence. That guy is like one of the true helpers, you know, and this this censorship is madness when they can. You know, that's just, that's part of his livelihood and part of his income. And then just for no explanation, by the way, your account's canceled. You can't appeal. All your stuff's going to get deleted. See you later. Like that's that's true, Matt. That's that's like 1984 stuff. Yeah. Well, for everyone listening, his YouTube channel is still going. And then Wolf Brigade, I've been doing their programming for a couple of months now. So if you want to support him, then go to those channels instead. So then very first question for you, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? You're finding me in the great, great town of Carlton, New York, which is uh, Western New York. I'm up by Lake Ontario, probably only a half a mile. And the biggest city would be about a half a mile or I'm sorry, half an hour east of me, Rochester, New York. So I'm between Rochester and Buffalo. Okay, that's where the connection is with Greg then. Yes, yes. Brilliant. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your you know, life journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. So I, I was born and raised in uh, this little city called Lockport, New York, which is just outside Niagara Falls, south or uh, north of Buffalo. Uh, my dad was a police officer in the city of Lockport for 28 years. Eventually, he retired as a detective. And of course, like, you know, my, my, my mentor, my, my God, you know, always wanted to be like him. My mom was basically a stay at home mom um, until we got a little bit older. Then she took a job at a local hospital working like in the uh, administration end of it. Then eventually got a full time job at our local uh, jail here, again, working administrative roles. And she was like, just the salt of the earth. Like she, she got the fast track and she died to go to heaven. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Kindest, like, most like never heard her say a bad word about anyone. Like just an incredible lady. Um, and then I'm the middle child, so I have a I have an older sister Julie and a younger sister Sherry. And uh, we were very middle class. Like I mean, barely middle class. So my dad he worked forty hours as a police officer. Then he worked forty hours in this plant that uh, did plating, like uh, chrome plating. So he'd come home a mess. And then on the weekends, he would have a part-time job with my uncle. And they would do like re- construction and remodeling. So honestly, when I was younger, he wasn't around that much. Uh, I don't have a ton of memories, you know, as a younger kid because he was just never home. My mom was always there for us. And Lockport is like just this cool little city of like 25,000. You know, and it's those days when there was parks within a quarter mile of, uh, of where I lived. You rode your bike there in the summertime. You got to come home when the when the street lights came on, like all that, like stuff you hear about of, of you know days past. That was truly it, and a fairly safe city, a great school district, and I, I it was it was just a great place to grow up. City of Lockport. With the twenty twenty three lens that I have now, I look at you know a lot of things very differently, and one of the most under discussed elements, you know, arguably negative coping mechanisms of mental health challenges is busyness, is taking overtime, is working many, many jobs to the point where, as you mentioned, you're not seeing your family, the very people that ultimately you know you were doing this for. Was your dad working purely out of necessity all these hours? Or do you think when you look back, there might have been that element involved as well? I, You know, my dad was a hard man. It, he was, you know, and, and 
you know, it, not to judge. He never once told me he loved me. Like we, we weren't, he wasn't that kind of guy. He was very stoic, a very hard, hard man. I think, I think most of it was born out of, out of necessity. Um, you know, he tried to provide for us and he, he wanted to like us to have a middle-class type of life back then law enforcement pay was terrible. Like just absolutely terrible. It's nowhere near the amount of compensation we get now, you know, whether it's police or fire. And so I, I think that was, I think that was most of it. Um, I just remember him. He's just, he was just a very, very hard man, both, both of like will and, you know, he, he, it was of the age where you never worked out, but I've never saw him get tired. Like that man could work around the clock. Um, you know, now I guess when I look back, you can see where he was edgy at times or, you know, uh, short of temper at times or of patience. And I'm sure some of that was from, you know, working a hundred hours a week for, for years on end. So when you were young, obviously you went into a very physical um, profession and then you ended up being an elite endurance athlete. What sports and um, uh, activities were you doing in the school ages? So school ages, I pretty much did them all. They, they forbid me to play football because I had a neighbor and he had a few concussions as a young kid. And they're like, you're not, you know, my parent, my, especially my mom was, you know, I would say overprotective. And so, you know, I, w- I would do the soccer. I would do the baseball. And as a, as a youth and as even as a high school student, I was horrible at athletics, like absolutely zero God-given talent. You know, the last kid, and I got used to it after a while. You're the last kid picked for, for pickup football games. You're the last kid picked for pickup basketball games. You sit the bench almost the entire game during little leagues. Like it was just, you know, I, I had none of these genes and I, whether some of it was physicality, some of it was probably mental too, um, to a degree, but I was just a horrible athlete. And I, I talk about it where my one whole goal in high school was to get a varsity letter jacket because I would, I went into 10th grade, our senior high school, and you saw these gods and goddesses walking down the hall, like literally like walking billboards of greatness, varsity letter patches on their jackets, uh, all these, uh, emblems on their state some had state champions sectional champions league champions and all kinds of stuff and i was i was in all of these people and that's all i wanted that's that would have made me the happiest person in the world I, i'm pretty sure and i couldn't earn one and the only sport i could make was track because they didn't cut anyone i couldn't make any of the teams that had cuts or, or or definitive rosters so i went out for track and um, just was never able to earn that. And I, and I joke around with people that I'm probably still, why I do some of the things I do is I'm probably still trying to earn that fucking letter, that varsity <laughs> letter that was so elusive in high school. Were you big in high school? Were you small? Were there any kind of physical challenges or was it just purely your ability to actually perform the sports? The ability, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a strong guy by nature. I have this like somewhat skinny bone structure, but average, that's the, that's the whole kind of premise is just like average height, average weight, maybe on the skinny side, average intelligence, just like the truly the most average guy in the entire world. But I couldn't bring it when it came to, to athletics. I, I just couldn't bring it. And, and it was frustrating. And the reason it was fust- more frustrating was I always had these these visions of grandeur of being great, like on a global level, it, not just at sports. Like I wanted to be uh, Edwin Moses. Like back then he was that like two time Olympian uh, intermediate hurdler. And I'm like, I'm going to make it to the Olympics. Like I could have, I could even barely run varsity. And so it, it, it became frustrating 
after a while. And, you know, maybe career also wanted to be globally great. And I, I've always had that. So it, it was hard to mesh the super average person with wanting the expectations of greatness. What did it do to your mindset when it came to the training? Because I, I was always very small. I mean, I literally, I'm not exaggerating. I had my final adult growth spur up when I was 18, which is years behind. So I'm going to go to community college and there was all these men. And I was like a little ventriloquist dummy that was hanging around with them. <laughs> but what it did is it burnt that, you know, it lit that fire into me. And I never became, you know, world champion or anything, but I definitely achieved a lot more just from that bloody mindedness of being someone who was never pick first, who was always, you know, so much smaller and slower than a lot of the people that I was, you know, amongst in my school years. Uh, so early on, I let it defeat me. So like my senior year of track, I knew there was no way in hell I was going to earn a varsity letter. So I just made up an excuse and I quit. I had this minor surgery. I was recovered. I tell, I lied to the coach. I'm like, ah, oh, they said I shouldn't run this year. He's like, okay. So I threw in the towel and I did that often. I did that like my first year of college. I couldn't use that um, to my ability. And it wasn't until, gosh, so I was, uh, you know, in my forties probably that I finally understood like how I could use that for fuel, how I could use that um, averageness. And, and what I always, what I never did was for the most part is threw away those visions of grandeur. And so even to this day, like I think of, things I want to do that most people may say is crazy or extreme. And I think that's what, what by still carrying that in my pocket to a degree, that's what it really helped propel me in the, you know, the, the second half of my life. Now you mentioned that your dad was a police officer, but you weren't around him very much. Were you dreaming of law enforcement when you were in the, the high school age or was there something else? Ever since I was a kid, I, there was two things I would, I would teeter uh, back and forth. It was either going in the military or um, becoming a police officer. And my grandfather was a, uh, was a uh, Naval Academy graduate. He, he flew uh, planes for the Navy. And so I tried to go to West Point, but you, first of all, we had no political juice. It's, you know, it, you have to get a political nomination and, you know, they don't let average people in the West Point. They don't like they, and I probably would have failed out my first year with the mindset I had then. Uh, so then once I gave that up, then, you know, I was, I went to school for criminal justice, uh, you know, for college, my secondary education, but still ended up uh, joining the National Guard when I was uh, 18 years old. Uh, so I, I, you know, those were only the two things I wanted in my entire life. There's nothing, anything else I had, you know, but I had dreams of FBI or like a CIA spook or, you know, uh, being a, being a special forces and everything else. But uh, yeah, always those two professions. It's funny. I've had a lot of people on here. I am, by no means connected with the military. I'm just a firefighter that got to speak to a lot of people, a lot of war fighters. And there is a resounding um, common denominator of people that did go through the West Point program that absolutely hated it, hated it. <laughs> so I think, you know, that just on your little checklist there, maybe that, <laughs> maybe you weren't supposed to go because I haven't really heard. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that did enjoy it, but it's amazing how many people are be on the show that were like, that was, you know, some of the worst years of my life. And, you know, I think for, for a number of different reasons, but, uh, but yeah, so, oh. so some of these pinnacle programs maybe look better from the outside than, than inside. Just had that conversation with uh, Tim uh, Duba, who owns one of the owners of ProTech. 
And I saw him at Wolf Brigade and we were, he, he's a Naval Academy graduate. He's like, it sucked. He's like, it was nothing like I thought it would be. He goes, it wasn't as hard. And his dad went through. And he was like, it's nothing as hard as I thought it was. And it wasn't as challenging. And I was like, come on, man, you just shattered my dreams. Like, that probably made me feel better that, you know, like you, like you had just said, but yeah. So I had just recently heard that. Interesting. Well, so you come out of high school, you've got dreams of military or law enforcement. Walk me through your journey into policing them. So I ended up going to a, a, a kind of a prestigious school out here, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. And I actually went for accounting thinking I wanted to get in the FBI. And my first year of college, I absolutely bombed. I joined a fraternity. I joke. I say I got straight A's. I got straight A's in beer drinking. And I got straight A's and partying and not, and not studying hard. And I had a million reasons and excuses. And it, college there did suck. It was huge classrooms. Um, I didn't find it, the, the material interesting. And it was just, it, it wasn't for me. So I, I stuck it out that year. Um, and then I went, I started going to a community college for, for criminal justice. And then that's where I really started to apply myself. I liked the subject matter. I had just got a basic training for the Army National Guard. So I had some of that discipline stuck from that. Um, and then it, it was the, I was, I got my associate's degree. I was going, getting my, uh, my bachelor's at Buffalo State College. And I got hired is at the Lockport Police Department while my dad was still there at the uh, unripe age of 21. So he was at the same department as you? Yeah, he was in the same department. We, it was weird back then. Like you would never do that now or no one would, but I got hired early before the Academy and they're like, okay, here, my dad's like, gives me a gun, no range time. He's like, don't carry this in the bars. It's only for work. Cause he was the range guy there, got my uniforms. And I was on patrol even before I went to the Academy and my dad was still there. So we got to work together from uh, March or I'm sorry, May until like September of that year. And then when he retired, I got to get his, I got his badge, badge number 15, which was like just special that I got to carry that on. Well, not seeing him very much because of all the hours he was putting in. Did you get some version of quality time when you were actually in the same department? I did. And, we, and our, our quality time came, um, honestly, it was, it was pretty much after my parents got divorced. Um, I was uh, like 16 years old when they got divorced. Uh, and we probably became closer then. And we became like, we'd always go hunting together. We'd go on fishing trips in the spring. He wasn't working like he, like a madman, like he had been. And, uh, we became a lot closer once I became an adult. Um, and that's where I really, honestly, that's where I got to know him. I, I still remember pouting around the house because he said he would go take me, you know, we'd go to the range shooting or shoot my BB gun when I was 12 years old. And I would sit there all day and wait for him, but he was tied up on a construction job. And I remember just like being this little piss pot and, you know, disappointed and mad and angry. And I was glad that like, as, as time went on, uh, we, we really connected at, at a much deeper level, you know, as, as I got older. Did he have any, any sort of guilt or regret when he looked back at how much time he did spend away from you? I, he was built differently. I, I don't, I don't think he ever, I don't think regret was a word that like resonated with him ever. It really wasn't. He's such a, like I said, he's such a hard man. Um, and it wasn't a, it wasn't like a, a front he put up. It was, I think it was just the way he was raised with some like really tough Polish parents. So I, I don't think so. Um, 
it, and the funny part though, is like later when I, and I went to build my house, like he was here every day, like every day in his late sixties, you know, working like a crazy man, keeping up with me. And, um, you know, and he, I could always count on him. I could, especially as I got older, I could always pick up the phone and, and count on him to help me. Well, I know we're going to talk about your, you know, physical um, endurance journey. When you walk through the front door of your department, talk to me about the fitness standards and the kind of defensive tactics back then. Oh, gosh. Like, so it was a really like cheesy thing to, to get on the list. Like you, you score so high on the test and it was like these cone dashes, some push-ups, some sit-ups. And I remember it was by some folks administered by the police department. I just remember watching it back then, like their stomachs were hanging over their belts. And I'm like, they were counting push-ups that shouldn't have counted back then and sit-ups that there was no kind of standard whatsoever. And then when I went to the Academy, the Academy was run pretty well as far as the physical fitness standards. Um, it, it was more militar- militaristic um, in nature. The defensive tactics back then we had really good instructors, but it was very as that robotic kind of, you know, front block with your baton and low block and side block, things that you would probably in realistically probably would never use um, in a true street fight. Uh, I, I, they, I thought they were they were probably up to par at the time, but like if you look back now, like woefully, woefully uh, uh, inadequate. And so when I went to the academy. I I had unfortunately picked up this bad habit of smoking when I got out of the military. I was uh, 19 at the time, and I still remember my dad smoked three packs of cigarettes a day at least. He and and never not saw him with a cigarette in his mouth like it wasn't a thing. And he would he would just never not be smoking. He started smoking when he was 12. So you know, and wanting to be like my dad, I still remember at 19. I still. Wilson Farms, downtown Lockport. I pull into the parking lot. I went in. I bought my first pack of cigarettes. And it was the same exact cigarettes that my dad smoked. And I remember choking on that first cigarette. But, you know, I, I said I wasn't good at stuff. I became good at smoking. I became damn good at smoking. You know, a pack or two a day. And I went to the academy. And I could still, like, so I said it was a cop fest in the world of, of running a mile and a half. Like, I, I'm middle of the pack. But when I went to the academy... You know, the standards weren't that high and there was there was a lot of people that were overweight and, and or out of shape. So like for once, I kind of stood out at something like I didn't win the PT award, but I was like up near the top of things. And I, I just uh, and that's why I talk about regret. And I, and I know that my lung cancer eventually killed my father. And I often think I'm like, does he like when he was dying, did he regret all those years of smoking? And I know he did because his his, his mind just didn't work like that until I saw him right before he died. And he, he said, I finally quit smoking and I never forget this. He's like, you know, these cigarettes are killing me. And, and I left on my motorcycle with my son and I said to myself, no dad, they already killed you. And he was dead like a week later from his first chemotherapy. And uh, so I, I, like, you know, I, I had picked up that bad habit of smoking. And back then all cops smoked. It was a, not all, but like, that was a thing. Like you, you smoked as a cop and you wore a mustache and you drank coffee and you got drunk off duty. Like that was, those were the four tenants of law enforcement back in the uh, late eighties. So where did you find yourself as far as, um, you know, the, the specific job responsibility early in your career? I loved it. I, I worked the road, you know, that the, the one downfall was working in your own little city of 25,000 is, 
you end up arresting people that you know and you go to the domestics of people you know and you know some people that you kind of respected you see behind the curtain a little bit you're like oh god you know he or she's a piece of shit um so you know sometimes that that dampens your spirits a little bit but i love being a small town cop because you, you felt like you were making a difference there and i really enjoyed work like i i loved it i i was probably a little bit like off the hook a little bit you know chasing people down and you know, stopping every car they went by. Uh, but I, I truly, when I got there, I was like, oh gosh, I'm glad I love this. Cause this is, you know, this is the career I decided on. And, and it was, it was, it was awesome to, to, you know, kind of put on that Superman cape for a while. Or at least that's how it felt. One thing that's, that's definitely apparent in the volunteer fire service, but also responders that live and work in the city, which, you know, more often than not now is rare because most of us can't afford to live in you know, the bigger cities. Um, but, that reminder every corner every you know intersection every every building has a story as you get deeper and deeper in your career did you see that yourself as you kind of progress through your 30 years i did absolutely and 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 how it how like small town policing where when i was in lockport i got a set of these keys and i had keys to most of the buildings downtown because the 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 people that owned them wanted the police to have them. So if, you know, if, if there was a break in that you could, instead of going through the window that's broken or the, that you could open up that door, you can check inside for burglar alarms. And it was uh, in, in that smaller town, it was awesome. And, and cause I knew exactly where everything was and you knew who the, tr- who the, the bad guys were and who the good people were. It changed a little bit when I, when I transferred to the Rochester police department, I spent four years in Lockport, so then I go to Rochester, a city of that time, probably like a quarter million. Um, I would say like seven, eight hundred police officers. And uh, it was it was hard at first to adjust in Rochester because I didn't know Rochester. Although I went to college out there, I didn't really venture into the city proper. And it was almost it was kind of like starting new for some things. And uh, Rochester is a big melting pot. Um, Lockport, you know, at, at that time looked looked like me. Um, you go to Rochester and I mean, I worked, I ended up going to a section that was primarily Spanish and African-Americans and Dominicans and people from Cuba. And it was just this melting pot of all different types of folks, Jamaicans. And I really didn't deal with that too much in Lockport. So there, there was quite a big learning curve. So what was that um, metamorphosis then? Because I had the same thing. I was, I was an English farm boy and then... All of a sudden, I'm working in you know <laughs> cities that have gangs and all kinds of stuff, and and it is it's a culture shock when when you've come from, you know, seemingly pretty uh, naive in a positive way upbringing, and now you know you're pulling sheets over people of all colors and creeds. So what what how did you kind of deal with that jarring difference between the first department and Rochester? It was uh you know I really leaned on those officers I worked with that had been there, that had been city cops, big city cops for five or six years and uh, kind of took the lead from them. And I think it was, um, I've always, I've always, I was an introvert as a kid, very shy, not very outgoing. I think as I, as I eventually got into law enforcement, I started to shed that a little bit. And I, I developed along the way, this, this ability to talk to people like people of all walks of life. And it wasn't easy at first. It wasn't hard. But eventually that's how how I did it was, you know, we're all the same folks, man. We may not all look the same. Our houses may not all look the same on the inside or the outside. We may not all have jobs or the same jobs. But it was 
it was about it was a couple it was a couple years until you started to understand the different cultures and and how they interact amongst themselves or with me and like just because someone was yelling you know and was 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 kind of you know going off it didn't mean that 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 they were yelling at me that was just like part of their culture was to yell or you walked into a a scene and say it was some spanish folks like you would generally go over and talk to the, the male first because you know they see themselves as the head of the household, and if you went talk to the female first, like that, that could cause big problems. And it's not discrimination; it's just doing the job and diffusing things when you first walk in there instead of throwing gas on the place. So um, it was it was it was a curve. It was definitely a learning curve. And the whole thing that brought me there was I want to stay in Lockport my whole life. Like I I love that city. I I wanted my kids to go to the same schools I went to because half the people I went to high school with became teachers and hang around with kids of my friend's kids, but they laid off some folks in Lockport and I was still safe because I had seniority, but they, they found out that Rochester took transfer. So all your time transferred, your retirement time. And I wanted to work narcotics my entire career. That was my entire goal once I started. And in Lockport, it would have took me eons to finally get on a drug task force. So I'm like, let me go to the big city. I probably have a, a better chance. And that was the whole, the whole premise of me coming to Rochester. So I wanted to get that. This is this is a topic that I visit a lot, especially with law enforcement, because of um, having seen it through first responders' eyes. You come from a, a smaller, you know, quieter town. You go to Rochester, New York. Um, you've got this burning desire to enter you know, the narcotics officer side of things. What were you seeing up to that point as far as the impact of prohibition of illicit drugs in the communities that you were serving when i got there that was literally the beginning of the crack epidemic in rochester new york and it it was just out of control the amount of violence associated with the amount of all the other crimes you know the the car larcenies the burglaries um drug dealers robbing one another it was it was mass chaos where I worked. It was called the Clinton section. And it was probably one of the most violent sections in the entire city. And it was, it was like the okay corral. Like it, it was just, I went there and I never realized, I thought of Rochester naively as Kodak and Xerox and Balsh and Lom. And I, and uh, there was a big GM plant here. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Rochester where it's like Lockport, but bigger. And I got there. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I, and, you know, it's probably not cultural, culturally correct. But back then, you know, everyone just referred to these parts of the city as the ghetto and just like just run down neighborhoods. And the crack epidemic is what kind of helped to destroy. Like it was the final straw that maybe helped to destroy Rochester. And it was just when it hit, it, it came like a tornado and a hurricane and a forest fire, like all wrapped into one. And there was addicts everywhere. Now, initially, when you joined the task force, what was the the strategy of battling the quote unquote war on drugs at that point? So we, we had different like divisions or um, different teams within narcotics. I first went there as an officer for about a year and a half. And I was on what we call a, a night team or a gatehouse team. Our sole thing was we had one half of the city and we would work on uh, like, you know, doing search warrants on drug houses or we would buy drugs undercover from these popular street corners that all had drug dealers hanging out on them. And we call them buy busts. 
So that was our main function was we, we would hit it at the, at the ground level playing whack-a-mole, you know, in retrospect, like I realized that it, it really wasn't, you know, the problem is when you have, when you have 10 seats for drug dealers, you know, there's, then there's an ass for every seat and you take one guy out, there's a hundred guys waiting to make that money. Um, and when you talk about a city of Rochester where the graduation rate for high school is just dismal, it's probably one of the worst school districts in the entire nation. So like they, these, these folks have nowhere else to turn other than drugs. And there's three third generation drug dealers. So that was it. Like we hit them at the street level. And uh, so I eventually got promoted out of there as a sergeant and went back to the road. And then like lightning struck, that's when it, the war on drugs was like full steam ahead. They were pouring all that money into it, federal money. And they formed, they doubled the narcotics unit. I went back up initially and I ran one of those night teams. And we, at that time, there were so many teams, we only had a quarter of the city. And so uh, every night, banging warrants, banging warrants, uh, doing by bus over the street corners. And after about a year of that, I, I ended up on a drug task, a newly formed drug task force that was uh, c- countywide, but not all the agencies. There, there was two, now we had two competing task force. And eventually we brought that all under one umbrella. So for the last 20 years of my life, I, I supervised, uh, you know, a big element of this countywide drug task force. And then we, now we're not just in the city. We were up in all the suburbs of Rochester and even the rural areas. With this, this element of your career, uh, what are some of the career calls? What are some of the, you know, the things that you responded to that you remember the most? Um, like that when I, the, I would say like when it came to narcotics, what was, what was awesome once I started this, we started this task force, was we would do uh, wiretaps all the time. We would take down organizations. I mean, we would have the federal agents on our task force and they would end up going to Puerto Rico and we, we, we chopped the, you know, the head of the snake off from there, the source, the true source of supply, or we fly off to California and pick up the guy who was, you know, doing multi-kilo shipments into Rochester. We get people extradited back from the Dominican Republic. Those, those like when you really, when you really get those upper echelon guys, that are are tied into the governments of of those countries. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, I, I would say like I had a couple of close calls um, in my career, and I think I'd laugh. I say, well, the first one was in Lockport. Now you, you dial back to nineteen eighty nine or or uh, maybe ninety. Is we have this guy who tries to shoot his wife. This this will tell you how backwards we were. Tries to shoot his girlfriend with a shotgun. He misses. He takes off. Car chase. We end up stopping him at a uh, in a mall. And while he's driving to the parking lot, he's firing this uh, rifle out the window, a shotgun out the window. And he finally gets against this huge stone wall. And he it ends up being a standoff for literally hours and hours. He's just walking back and forth with his shotgun in his hand, firing rounds indiscriminately in the air. Never pointed it at the police. I think he wanted. Uh, suicide by cop like he, one time he brought it up and he was just bringing it down almost enough where where we'd be forced to shoot him and there's a zillion cops there and so the sheriff shows up i'm in the town actually i'm outside my jurisdiction and the sheriff who i kind of knew he's like hey kid come with me and i'm like okay you know like, i don't know i've got two years on the job and we sneak up behind these big boulders and behind these pine trees is like okay we're gonna tackle this guy from behind you get you go up top and i'll go down below and Literally, I looked at him. I'm like, he's like, even even wanting to be Superman back then. I'm like, what? This is this doesn't make sense. And 
So we took, he turned his back and we had to close like probably like 10 yards and then bum rushed a guy. And like, he just started turning around with the shotgun. He heard us coming and luckily we, we were able to take him to the ground and wrestle it away. And I remember like people were jokingly called uh, Batman and Robin. So of course I came into work the next day. There's the Robin costume with tights hanging <laughs> on my, uh, on my locker. And, and back then, you know, I was kind of proud of what I did until, you know, it sunk in years later. I'm like, probably the stupidest thing in my career I've ever done. Like literally the stupidest thing. And then um, when I was working it, it still as a patrolman in Rochester, uh, we would mess with this guy. He was the biggest weed dealer. Like we, what we would do is we would go down his street. We would arrest all the weed dealers. And then we'd have cops out there pretending to sell fake weed to all the suburban people and the city people that would come through. Then we would arrest them as they left, which later was found to be um not constant or unconstitutional, or at least not against the law because of a court ruling. But these cars were lined up like 40 deep. This guy was making tens of thousands of dollars. And we would mess with them all the time back when I was in youth. And we messed with them. And finally, one day we got him. We got him with a, in his garage. And he's, uh, he's reaching. He had a dog between us, this giant Rottweiler. And I, I didn't want to shoot the dog. Like I, the dog was just doing his job. And I, I saw him looking at me. I said, that fucking guy's thinking about killing me right now. And I had him at gunpoint, me and my partner. And I could tell that he, he was debating fight or flight. And right in front of us, he reached into his hoodie pocket and he turned his back and he put something up in the rafters, almost like we couldn't see him. Like it was like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to disappear right now. And it was a handgun and like a half a pound of weed. So we locked him up. Of course, he got back out. And then um, it was like a month later, it was like around July 4th weekend. Out, my whole platoon, there's only like four of us. We were like a proactive team. They were all off of work and I was the only guy working. So I rolled up to that area and there was a, one of his little minions on the corner and I kicked that dude off the corner. And I was just standing out there like I was trying to like pee on their, you know, you know, like a dog, like I was trying to mark my territory and be like, you're not fucking going to be here tonight, man. This is my corner. And I just, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a muzzle flash and I saw more muzzle flash. And I, I started taking rounds kind of coming in across the street from a parking lot. At a, it was a laundromat at the time. And I could, I heard the zipping. And so I took off chasing them. There's three guys and uh, ended up losing them. We didn't find them. Uh, I was standing in front of this church and like literally a bullet had them miss me by like a foot. And it was like perfect head height. Um, I wasn't really, I wasn't really all that. Like I was scared, but I wasn't as scared until I, I stood there and I saw this, where the bullet had hit. So someone was looking out for me. And later we had learned through informants, we could never prove that that dude put a contract out on me, 10 grand to kill me. Really? And some of these young punks, you know, wanted to cash in on 10 G's. And uh, what made it worse was, and again, we can never prove it. It was a policeman's son was one of the guys. Oh my God. Yeah, man. Messed up. Well, I want to, you know, put something to you. And this is your community is the, the hardest community to ask because for so many years you were told this is bad. Go and arrest these people. Lock them up. But when I look at my career through a firefighter and a paramedic's eyes, um, coming from a, an English farm boy that was herding sheep when he was young, um, it gave me a very kind of different perspective um you know where i wasn't completely indoctrinated in a lot of things that, that we were you know raised with and as i start 
looking at the war on drugs and then I've talk, told the story many times that my mother and brother moved to Portugal and I heard how they decriminalized, not legalized, but decriminalized addiction. So you're a seller, you get banged up. You're a smuggler, you get banged up. You're an addict, you get educated on the resources and there's a shitload of resources for them there and you try and get these people back on the straight and narrow. The more people have asked on here that have come from a law enforcement background about the efficacy of the war on drugs, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you just can't arrest your way out of this problem. My personal opinion, James Gearing, is that that decriminalization to me is the only way that we address this because addiction is a, a mental health element. They're not criminals. They're not scumbags. Now, some of these addicts do some bad things, and that's a separate conversation. But the war on drugs, driving an addict into the underworld, empowering cartels and gangs to, to be able to smuggle and turn to crime, to me, we've tried that for, I mean, it's been almost 100 years now since the original prohibition. Um, my perspective is it's an epic failure and we have to try something else. You spent your whole career in, in SWAT and narcotics. What's your perspective of that philosophy? So I, I'm probably like a unicorn because... First of all, I served over 20 years on a uh, on a rehabilitation uh, clinic board of directors. I was the president of the board for like five years. So I always, always believed in, you know, there has to be rehabilitation. There has to, you know, there has to be recovery. And so what I would commonly see is, is a supervisor. My guys would go out and buy drugs and they would get waved down by some guy or gal on the street corner who were obviously addicts. Like you looked at them, you know what an addict looked like. And so that person would take our cops money, go to the drug house, buy the drugs, come back with the drugs and give it to our cops. And we would originally arrest those middle people for criminal sale of a controlled substance third, a felony, like a pretty heavy felony, a B felony. But I would always put a note in those in that case file that went to the district attorney that that person's a user, not a dealer. They need diversion to drug court. And we had this great drug court. We still do in Rochester where a lot of people end up realizing how hard it is, you know, to get, to graduate from drug court because there's all these rules for the, probably the first time in their entire life that they have to follow. And so we would, I would always be an advocate and I would agree like the, the actual dealers themselves, like the big heavy duty dealers, they, they need to rot in prison, but those people caught in the middle that are selling it to fuel their addiction, they're not drug dealers. They're, they're like a victim of their circumstance. They're still doing wrong. But if we could, I always, we always try, I always try to divert that. And of course, there's those asshole, like send them all to jail. Like, yeah, that, yeah that's going to work, right? You tell me how that's worked out so far. So we, I would be a big advocate of that, that those people that were caught in the middle that were clearly, you know, and, and some, some sergeants didn't want to make that, didn't want to make that termination i'm like what well that that's why a you have stripes on your sleeves and that's why you get paid extra to make those calls and my guys my guys understood the new people didn't like oh that's a drug dealer no like you'll, you'll understand drug dealers once you're up in this unit for a while well the other thing is all the crime that's attached to it you look at homelessness you look at you know sex work you look at all these other things you know when i've interacted with most of those people it always seems to come back to prohibition, you know, whether it's, like you said, addiction and they're trying to fuel their addiction, whether it's, you know, uh, um, a very poor neighborhood in Rochester where their role model sadly is slinging dope versus, you know, a military member or a sports mm -hmm. coach or someone like that. So to me, and you said cut the head off the snake, exactly. If we actually took away the consumer supply and demand, 
I think it would affect everything from the gangs and the violence on our streets to even the cartels overseas or across the border that, you know, we've watched go from, you know, somewhat low-level criminals to these absolute monsters in 2023. Yeah, and that's and that's the uh I think that's the that's the tricky part is is like we have for some reason this country has this voracious appetite for drugs. And we do we spend so much of our money we do on the enforcement part of it and very little on the true prevention part of it. About, you know, and then, you know, we could we could open up all of Pandora's box with the opioid epidemic that was that was caused by physicians caused by big pharma, like not, no one could ever argue against that. And like, I just, I can't believe how much like cocaine or now fentanyl that, that America can consume. It's, it's just, it's, it's incredible. But that prevention piece is like the smallest leg of that stool whatsoever, you know, even less than, you know, and we talk about uh, rehabilitation or recovery, like that's still woefully underfunded, but, there really isn't any of this, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to prevention, they tried, uh, you know, to a degree with dare in school. And I, I thought that was a great program, but the, the, the underlying issue is an hour of dare in school, you know, sometimes it's hard to negate, you know, the other, the, the 16 hours that that poor student spends at home, you know, immersed in the inner city. And that's all they know. You know, it's, it's, it's sad. It, you know, it's, it's truly hurts your soul. A couple of statistics that I've I've been told, actually one of them I've I've been getting wrong for a while, and someone just corrected me on social media. But one is we we are I think we make up four percent of the world's population in the U.S. We consume seventy five percent of the world's opioids, which is insane. And then I used to think it was that much at the incarcerated population, but I was way off. I don't know how I got my my stats confused, but we have twenty percent of the world's incarcerated population. So. The prevention side, like you said, I mean, we're screaming for it. And again, sadly, we're going to go through this god-awful meat grinder of political bullshit again in the next few months and have to choose from two (laughs) fucking awful people yet again. But I don't understand why there isn't this this paradigm shift where people are like because it's you know we have the internet now we have this information we, there's shows like dope sick and um painkiller just came out and you know which are telling the sackler story by the way richard sackler lives in boca raton and like a million dollar house still still you know free as a bird after killing yep. hundreds of thousands of people but um you know this is the issue we have a mental health problem and it manifests in addiction alcoholism suicide i mean all these other areas but it, it's it's not cool to talk about that, so it's brushed under. But you know, I mean, you look at <laughs> you look at the nineteen nineties uh, show Cops. You know, back then, law enforcement was chasing people for a bag of weed. You know, <laughs> and, and we just, I it just, I don't know how we finally get people to to calm down their knee jerk war on drugs. You know, addicts are pieces of shit. Why are we wasting um, Narcan um, conversations and actually look through a christian buddhist muslim whatever eyes with this compassion towards our fellow man and actually try and be proactive and 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 address the nucleus of the situation not the band-aid which is the actual drug itself it's you know until people realize and and still especially law enforcement that it's a you have to look you have to realize that it is a disease and until you do like you will never look at it in the proper perspective of how it should. And 
you know, 90, probably 90% of law enforcement don't see it as a disease, whether it's administrators. And, and then like you had mentioned mental health and there's all these co-occurring incidences going on. And in New York state, we have these silos. You have the mental health silo. Then you have the, uh, the, the drug rehabilitation silo. Well, you don't need silos. You need one big silo. You need to put all our resources together because these things are happening at the same time. Like you just can't treat your, like you said, you're putting a bandaid on, but the, the true problem may be the mental health of that person that caused them to become an addict. That will, that will always allow them to be an addict until you clean that up and, and fix that. So it is like, I, you know, obviously as, as you get older, hopefully you get wiser. And, and I think being on that, that board of directors for the rehab clinic really opened my eyes. And when you see people like the marijuana was the one that got me really. And everyone, you know, they, they say, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. And, and, and for some, maybe it's not, but we would see these kids and I say kids like in their teenagers come into the clinic and they were smoking weed like crazy. And they were almost like zombie a little bit, you know, just hard to have a conversation with these folks. And then once you started to see them then come off marijuana, you're like, you saw a personality, you saw a spark in their eyes, you saw the wit and you're like, Oh gosh, man, like that's, that's that person's true personality there. And uh, it was just, it was just awesome to see that. And just with a drug that most people would say, you know, is harmless. Um, yeah. It's probably harmless as long as you're not addicted to it. But I, I always, and you would see these people turn around and unfortunately you know, you don't hear as much about the success stories as you do about the failures, but you know, these that people can can lead a a normal life like you and I, you know, and after after being an addict, it's just when you see it, it's like heartwarming and inspiring. Um, but too many times you see you see the other part of it, you know, where that person has died of an overdose of a of a fentanyl or opioid overdose, and they've been in and out of rehab. Like, let's face it. When you start working out, you start losing weight. You don't the first your first try. You generally don't get down to your desired weight and walk away, right? Say, hey man, this is awesome. I'll live this way. It's a struggle, and that's how addiction is, man. It's a lifelong struggle, just like people struggle with obesity lifelong. So there's going to be bumps in the roads and setbacks and failures, but that doesn't define you as a person. So I, you know, can't give up on these people. That's I guess that's you know that would be my end, end comment on it. Yeah. Well, and this is what I struggle with as well. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about their faith and yet don't seem to actually act the way that the prophets in their holy books would act. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't be behind the war on drugs, for example. That's just, <laughs> that's just me. I think he'd be a little bit more right. altruistic towards addiction. But, um, well, it's funny you mentioned that because I just about four or five days ago shared a video it wasn't it wasn't mine i, I kind of reshared it from someone but it was these two addicts and they literally kind of look like sid and nancy from the sex pistols um totally zonked out probably on on opiates and you know who knows what else and then i think it was seven months later they interviewed um the the, the man of this this couple and he was clean and it was amazing. So in the, you know in this whatever it was sixty second video, you got to see as you said the zombie, and then the person. And these are the things that we need to see. You know, there's all the doom and gloom about the homelessness and all that stuff, and we'll, we'll just drive them to another county or another city. But each one of those human beings was a toddler once, was a kid with their whole life ahead of them. They never dreamed of living under a freeway bridge or shooting up, you know, in some dirty corner somewhere. And so. 
as you said, we need to put that hope in. We need to not dehumanize these people, but humanize them again. And obviously, we can't get to them. So also, the other part of the conversation is just because you can't fix 100% of them doesn't mean you try and help zero of them. And this is the thing I think that kills us in a lot of these, especially these fucking asshole politicians. You know, they'll pull out that worst case scenario. See, it doesn't work because, you know, so-and-so, this happened to them. They relapsed rather than there's 80% of those people that you'd actually probably be able to help. And if you lose, you know, if you try and still can't get to those other people, well, look at the ones that you did help. I mean, this is, and this is only going back maybe 15 years ago a short 15 years ago is before the opioid epidemic, but certainly during the crack epidemic, we had a district attorney here nominated for, to be a federal judge. And I think it was Chuck Grassley from wherever the fuck he hails from. who's super conservative. He bashed him because he sat on the same board as me. He's like, you're soft on crime because you sit on the board for a drug rehabilitation clinic. I'm like, have you lost your fucking mind? Like, do you, you, you okay, Chuck? We'll just arrest everyone out of there because it's working great. Like that was a mentality only 15 years ago that he got, and he ended up not getting the judgeship. And I don't know if that was solely it, but I'm like, that that's the mindset of these of these politicians who have zero clue, like zero clue. And God forbid it ever happens to their grandkids, they were probably they would probably look at it a little differently. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, you know, I, I would argue still part of the mental health crisis. You touched on obesity. I know that's another kind of area that you're passionate about. What is your perspective of overall physical fitness in law enforcement and you know, the civilian population? It's a, and, and I have, I look at that through a very uh, acute lens because the last 15 years of my career, I also worked is, is a side job, so to speak, at our local police academy. I was hired by the academy, which is accredited through a college. In the last five years of my career, I ran the PT program. I was in charge. And what I saw was, especially now as of late, we're getting a bunch of folks into criminal justice who, for whatever reason, like never played any type of uh, like team or athletic sports in high school. I'm not sure you know, maybe they were like me and they suck, but I still did track, but they come with, with almost zero type of, you know, you, the first day you ask them, everyone stand up like what one at a time, what do you do to stay healthy? Like what's your workout? And they all give the can, the canned answer. I lift weights two or three times a week and I run two or three times a week. And I look at them like, you're a fucking liar. Like inside, I'm like, you're a liar. Like you're not, that's just because the dude before that said that. And the girl before that said that. And they come in and over those six months of the academy, like I'm able, like with all the other people that help me with as instructors, we're able to have those people lose tons of body fat and become stronger and faster and confident and in, in, uh, in better thinking under stress. And it's so rewarding when these people leave. And the, and the funny part is like, the the husbands are like, oh my gosh, man, my wife can wear a bikini now. Like she looks awesome. And and the wives are like, man, my you got my husband looking buff. And then a year from then, I see him on the road and I'm like, you're back to where you were, man. Like it didn't stick. Like it didn't stick for whatever reason because I wasn't over you with a whip and you know, making you work out. And so I think across the board, law enforcement is is woefully unhealthy. Um, 
it's it's not it's it's not required. Like you could be it's, at least in Rochester, in most places, you have unions that are made up of people who are of high seniority and been on the jobs, and like they know that it doesn't affect them. Like they don't have to be healthy. They have these jobs in the union. Uh, it's not beneficial. It would just you know they would feel it discriminated against their people they're trying to protect. So it's I mean for doing the job it's and then you look at the rate of like hypertension and the the early deaths of uh, you know especially coronary related and or cancer like we're woefully unhealthy as law enforcement and you have those few studs here and there and those, some of those people that put their work in you hope it'll change but I, I, what I now we see with these folks coming in is this culture of comfort so now like. You don't have to go to the, you don't even have to go to the store, man. You can call up Uber Eats or you can call up some dude and some lady's going to deliver groceries to your house. You can order all your shit online. You could just be on your phone all fucking day on social media doing bullshit. And I think that's, that's, we saw that more. And I was really upset. My last academy class was horrible that I taught. It was absolutely just, just their attitudes. Um, there was a few standouts, but I was like, God, is this, is this the future? And I left somewhat like cup half empty, man. And I'm never like that. And then what was awesome is the guy who took over for me told me the next class was outstanding. And I would have loved to have been there. So maybe it was just an anomaly. Uh, but yeah, we, it is, is a, is a profession. We, we have to get healthier, you know, and yeah, and I, and going back to like addiction, I would do, I've written hundreds of programs of running programs because people know that I run and they're like, Hey, I want to train for a 5k or I want to train for a half marathon. And I would take, you know, the 30 minutes of putting a program together, give it to them. And about 95% of them don't follow through, but it's those 5% man that I, I maybe I'm working in uniform on overtime for the day and I see them coming across the finish line or I see them on social media where they finish a triathlon. And I'm like, fuck yeah, man, that's so cool. So like I said, I, I, I do it today. I do it tomorrow, you know, for those 5% that are willing to see it through. I've talked about this a lot and I was a union member of my whole firefighting career. But when I speak to now, I mean, high performers from all over the world, whether it's, you know, SAS or SEALs or Green Berets or you name it, um, but then also ocean lifeguards and some of those communities, there's no question. They all have standards and it's just simply you either meet it or you don't do that job. That's the only two options that you get. And then you look at police and fire and arguably EMS. There's no excuse for EMS to be out of shape either, especially, God forbid, you're in a shooting or something and now you're having to extricate human beings. But the resistance, like, I mean, since I started the, the fire service, it's 20 years now. There's two decades and there's almost no fire departments that I know of that have a legitimate physical fitness test that is punitive that you need to be held to. But if you look at what law enforcement or fire especially is is expected to do and from the zero to a hundred, you know, I mean, lying in a in a bunk at three AM to now having to throw a hundred pounds of gear and ascend tens and tens of flights of stairs before you even get to the thing that you're actually being called to do. It's pure insanity, absolute insanity. And this resistance, including some unions, I find fucking nauseating because firstly, you're obstructing 
the demand for someone to be at the physical level to perform, but also you are setting them up for failure when it comes to longevity when they retire. So what is what is your perspective of what, you know, why do our professions struggle to have these actual concrete physical standards and you're king for a day, what can we do to change it? So, and here's the problem now is, is now the administrations are setting them up for failure. Like we'll look at Rochester, they want to do away with the current uh, PT standards to get into the academy to get hired, which are set by the state. And it's one of it's a mile and a half run. And they're like, oh, well, you never chase a criminal for a mile and a half. Like, that's stupid. I'm like, well, that's that's not what it's for. It's not for chasing a criminal. It's it, it, First of all, test your mentality or any running test your test your mentality and your and your mental your mental fortitude. And it's, just, and it's not a crazy standard to make that mile and a half run. And then there's push-ups and sit-ups that everyone should be able to easily do. You know what the test is. You just have to train for it. And now they're like, well, New York City, yeah, like you, you want to follow anything that New York City does nowadays, like you're insane. Well, they do this obstacle course where you have to, and literally a 100-year-old man with one leg and a half an arm, he could do that and easily pass. So now they want to lower the hiring standards. Well, what the what does that translate into? What, like, what does that look like in 15 to 20 years from now, those people that you're lowering the standards to get on the job? And so how do you how would you ever want to make those people better when we're when we're, we're getting less qualified people? It's insane. King for the day is mandatory PT testing, mandatory at the 50 percent. So New York, New York State says for the academy, you come in at the 40 percentile, push up, sit ups, mile and a half run. You have to leave the academy at the 50 percentile. Our academy sets it at the 60 percentile. I'm fine. Let's do it at 50%. At the 50% time, you come back once a year, you have to pass that. Now, you don't pass it, you you get maybe I'll give you a month. Because in a month, you could work some miracle in a month if you stuck with it or six weeks. You come back in six weeks. If not, then there's going to be disciplinary procedures. And, I mean, that would that would shore it all up, right? Because we all want to keep our jobs in, in the back of your mind. And that's why I think I love SWAT so much. So our SWAT team was a part-time team. We trained a couple times a month. We got called out, so we did a regular, our regular jobs. But on SWAT, we had every six months we had standards. We had very high PT standards. A, uh, it's a obstacle course that we stole from LAPD because his little history there is RPD Rochester Police Department has the second oldest SWAT team in the entire country. We got stood up right after LA, and uh, and 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 we had like the special rifleman squad. So people argue that we were actually before LA. But we we got stood up right after L.A. back in the 60s. Um, and we and eventually they came and trained us um, back in the 80s. Um, LAPD would come like I'm talking like like true kings of the craft back then. And they would hold SWAT schools in Rochester. And so we do that every six months. And, you know, the, the last part that gets people is is the wall hang. You do the obstacle course and then there's this eight foot block wall. And in gear, and in your vest, all your stuff on, you jump up, you hang from the wall, you dead hang for like a count of two seconds, then you have to pull yourself over. And A, that crushes people from getting on the SWAT team. Or if you get on the team and then, you know, you let yourself go, you may struggle there. And then we have very, very high qualifications for handgun and rifle. And they're not like much higher than the department. And I, 
like being held to that standard, like it brings a sense of brotherhood to that team. And I say brotherhood, we never had a, uh, a female on the team. We've had some try out, but again, that wall tends to, tends to crush them. So I, I, I really like, that's why I think I love it. Cause you're around guys that can pull their own weight, no matter what, like, truly pull their own weight. Or when the time comes, you know that you can count on them, you know, hell or high water. A few years ago now, I interviewed uh, Big John McCarthy, the UFC referee, former yes. LAPD SWAT. And I believe, if my memory serves me right, his father was one of the ones that started up LAPD SWAT. Ron McCarthy, and he certainly did. He was, so it was before, predated my time on the team. But when we had our anniversary, one of our anniversary SWAT ones, we brought, we flew Ron McCarthy to Rochester. He was the keynote speaker at our dinner. And what a, like, he told stories of the Wild West. And what a, what a life that guy lead, uh, led. So I was very fortunate enough to get to meet the great Ron McCarthy. Like the, the true godfather of SWAT. Like that will always be his title for me. He mentioned about me getting him on the show. I need to now. I have to circle around. If, if, if he, you know, if I can still communicate with him, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but the, what you said about SWAT is kind of how I look at, you know, the fire service as well. And we, in our special operations, don't have a special, separate fitness thing unless, like Orange County, they have um, a special rope rescue team that goes up the giant Ferris wheels that we have in, you know, in London, in in Orlando here. And those guys, I mean, I think it's like three hundred foot or something. It's, it's a massive climb, so they they obviously have fitness standards there. But as you said, a law enforcement officer who is fitter, who is a better shot, why would that not apply to, to all law enforcement officers? There may be some specificity in all the gear that you guys, when you make an entry, but I mean, as far as physicality, you have the SWAT that are held to this standard and you're trying to get rid of standards for the people that are pulling over our children, our 16, 17, 18 year olds. I want that person to be well-trained in, you know, physically fit, well-trained in jujitsu, you know, do mindfulness training and be extremely confident with their weapon. So hopefully they won't pull it when my teenager reaches for a driving license at two in the morning. Yeah. And, and, and what we would catch a lot is, you know, from, from our peers is like SWAT kind of frowned upon. They're like, Oh, you know, the ha ha go guys with ball caps and your sleeve tattoos of which I have neither. Um, and, you know, uh, eat your, your uh, protein bars and, uh, and like, and because we have standards, we're like looked down upon because, you know, we, we, we volunteer for this unit that really, I mean, extra pay comes in overtime, getting called out at two in the morning um, to come in for a barricaded gunman. But it's kind of like almost frowned upon by other people. And it's like, you know, you would think that guys in SWAT would be the ones who people would be like, oh, man, I want to be like that guy. I want to I want to be in shape or I want to be a better shot. And it's funny how we're kind of bastardized or like vilified sometimes by our own people, which is terrible. And, and I look at SWAT like this. We've had the, the, I would say the majority of people that come on SWAT end up getting promoted. They end up getting promoted to, you know, a, a supervisor rank or another, or to a mid-level, you know, mid-management supervisor rank and or investigator. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, either SWAT picks the people that are go-getters and future leaders, or we get the people and make them future leaders. I don't, I don't pretend to know which one it is, but it, it fucking works, man. Like, like the, the discipline that we have in SWAT and what we, the standards we hold ourselves to in training and live missions, it does something to that person. 
And, you know, we've kicked our fair share off, which is the union doesn't get involved in SWAT, luckily, at RPD. So, like, you don't, you don't, if you're unable to stay on that speeding train, like, your fucking ass is showing the door. It's simple. Like, we, we call you in and you try to make adjustments and you don't, you're out. Like, we don't, there's no grievances. And we've done that to a bunch of people. And I just, that's why I love those guys. And I, I say, when I left, when I, when I retired after 32 years of service, the two things I miss the most, I love my narcotics guys, don't get me wrong, but I love teaching at the police academy and, and not just, not just changing bodies, but changing minds. Like it was more for me, it was, you know, the end game was making them mentally tougher. The means was through physical fitness, but I wanted people to come out of there knowing that they could be invincible for short periods of time. So I miss doing that. And I miss being around those SWAT guys. Like, because they're just, you know, they're people that we, we, you know, you would, you would with it, without a second of a doubt, you would die for or jump in front of a bullet for, and you would always have their backs. They always had yours. I spend a lot of time talking about the environment that a lot of first responders work in and how that truly does set us up for failure when it comes to our fitness and our health. I mean, it just does the sleep deprivation, especially in the fire service, the insane hours that are just perceived as normal uh, are literally killing our men and women. And there's, you know, physiological proof, and a lot of people on, on the show, the experts talking about the hormonal disruption, all these things, why there is weight gain when you don't sleep for shift after shift after shift. The people that I think are maintain their fitness, it's despite the environment, not because of the environment. But when it comes to, like you said, setting that bar high and then just asking the profession to maintain it, which includes, you know, creating a work week that, that allows them to rest and recover. In the fire service in Florida, at least where I went to school, they label our academy minimum standards. So they've, they've highlighted it for you. This is the shittest you should ever be in your entire life. You know, now, obviously, when you're 55 and beaten up after 25, 30 years in the fire service, you're not going to be as nimble as you were when you're 18. But picking up ladders, dragging dummies, climbing stairs, you know, advancing hose. These are the basic skill sets that we need in our profession when, when the bell goes off. So this is what I struggle with so, so much is at least when I went to school, we did come out of the academy in pretty damn good shape. And so what you got to do is just say, all right, we need you to keep that shape. You're not asking someone, you know, like you said, the the 17 year old gamer that's never even seen daylight to now be an ultra runner. You're just asking the person that set the bar, that reached the bar, to just hang on to that bar and hopefully try and get a little bit better along the way. But I don't understand where there's this mentality of like, you know, and you get this this Uncle Rico conversation like, oh yeah, man, I was in the best shape of my life in the academy. You should be in the best shape of your life now not looking back romantically at 15, 20 years ago at, at an academy that made you run and do push-ups. Now you're out there and you actually could get killed and you care less. I just It blows my mind. And I, I love the Uncle Rico thing because it brings me back to, um, we had a police officer who was diagnosed uh, with Huntington's disease, which is you know neuromuscular. So rather than, and he was a runner, an investigator, rather than like wallow in his despair, He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do a five, we're going to make up a 5k and we're going to have the, and we have a great research facility here in, in the university of Rochester. We're going to donate money directly to the research. So they ended up having this plaque and you would, you would appreciate this between, and it was between the fire department and the police department. And at the time it, it was like the top three runners from each, from law enforcement, 
or or a fighter would get their name on this trophy. So I put an email out. I'm like, come on, man. Like, this is the first year. We got to win this. And so these three kids from the academy, they're like three years out of the academy. And, and I was before I taught at the academy or I at least didn't remember them. And I'm like, you guys are all ready. They're like, oh, yeah, man, the academy. Like, I do a set, I do a six-minute mile. And the other guys, yeah, yeah. I was like right behind them. And I'm like, shit, man, I don't even have to even try today. Like, these three will be the top three runners. And, like, I, it's less pressure on me. So the gun goes off. And they sprint down the road. And then the, after about a mile, the one kid's on the side of the road throwing up. Mile and a half, I pass the second kid. At the two-mile mark, the other kid's walking. And uh, we we end up winning by the skin of my teeth. But at the end, I'm like, what the like what happened, guys? You're like, I don't know. I'm like, you know what happened. You haven't fucking ran since the academy. You know. Like, the glory days were only three years ago, man. And I think that's the mentality of people is like, Maybe they don't even realize where they're at. They're living in the good old days of two or three years ago. The fitness is so perishable. It's like, like you're not, you're living to make or leave lives, man. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, of, of running, that's a great segue. You start off being, as you self-described, unremarkable athlete. You get into initially law enforcement, then a very physical side of law enforcement Walk me through your journey into the endurance athlete space, and then talk, let's talk about some of the you know the the biggest races that you've been a part of. So um, it really starts on, on a night around the table where I was still smoking cigarettes, and we're playing this game after dinner. It's my wife at the time and my two young boys, and out of the corner of my eye, I see my youngest son. He's uh, pretending he's smoking a pretzel rod. And I catch it and then my blood pressure goes up and I want to yell. And, and for the once in my life, I pause and I'm like, he's just trying to be like you the same way you were like, trying to be like your dad when you walked in the Wilson farm, bought those cigarettes. So that night I quit smoking. I threw my cigarettes out. I uh, The next morning I went to Wegmans, our grocery store. I bought the patch, slapped that on my shoulder and never looked back. So then I said, I got to be a better role model. So I, I started going to the gym. We were in a brand new building, had a brand new gym. I'm like, I'm not going to waste my lunch hour kibitzing with the guys around the table. I'll go work out for a half an hour. And so I thought I was training. I wasn't, but I'd get on the treadmill and I lift some weights. And after four months, I'm like, I feel good, man. Like I, I want to show my boys how their dad turned over a new leaf. And so we, I signed us all three up for a 5K. And they're preteens. They're like nine and 11 or maybe 10 and 12. And so I get there and I'm like, listen, boys, just follow the crowd. I'll meet you at the finish line. Well, long story short, they both beat three teen sons, beat their dad who thinks he's in shape or hot shit or a role model. And I was crushed, just absolutely crushed on the way home. They were so proud and I was so happy for him. But I, inside, I knew I was rotting away. And I, that's when I first realized that I was going through the motions, that anytime shit got hard or uncomfortable, I would just back off wasn't training. It wasn't working out. It was just showing up. So eventually I, I, I that day I decided, I'm like, you're going to, it's going to be meaningful, whatever you're going to do now. And I slowly started um, running and I got on the SWAT team. And that was a, a huge, huge thing for me when I started getting around hard, hard men, mentally and physically hard and wanted to be like these people that I would call my mentors. They would they they refuse to give up, and if they got it wrong, they would do it until they got it right in training. There's no there's no half stepping, and I got around these guys, and one of them was Todd Baxter, 
who was one of the leaders on the SWAT team. And I remember one day after a hard day of training, I just wanted to go home and, and eat with the kids and go to bed. And I heard him whisper to someone that he was going to run 18 miles that night. He was training for a marathon. And I thought that was the most fucking ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I could barely stand after these hard SWAT training days. And that lit a fire. So I really got into, so because people on the surface would be like, you traded one addiction for another. You traded smoking for ultra marathon or, or distance racing, which is not true. This is a period of five years when I first quit smoking to my first half marathon. And I beat Todd Baxter at that half marathon, but like the God of gods, like somehow I beat him. He was running the Academy at the time, the PT. He was just seen as this, he, he was a fitness guy, came out of the military. So then after that, I was like, things started opening up and there's these perfect storms that I call them in my book. All these things lined up. And what really started it all was I got done with that half marathon. I had just built my own house. I mean, I literally built it with my own hands with help from friends and my dad, which was still probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was to physically, I did almost 90% of the work myself, didn't hire very little out. So I had this time on my hands. I had run that half marathon. Uh, we were fortunate enough to go down and train and use the 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 dev group, SEAL Team 6 or whatever people call them, use their facility for a week of training because we met them while they were training up here. And uh, they really appreciated all the stuff we did. And, and they made us swim. And I swam as a child at the YMCA, not very on the swim team, coming in last place, drinking a lot of water. But they made us swim, and it kind of came back to me. And then I saw this bicycle when I was moving into my new house, this old Schwinn. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be a fucking Ironman. I didn't, know what I, I didn't even know what the distance was. And this was in 2006. And I'm like, I'm going to be an Ironman. And then I looked it up and I was like, holy shit, man. It was a 2.2-mile you know, swim, 112-mile bike, and a 26.2-mile marathon. And the only thing I had done up to there was a half marathon. And all the people, all the experts on the interweb, all the experts that I knew were like, never do an Ironman your first year of training. You build up to it. And I'm like, because you did? Like, and I, even at that time, a very good friend of mine died very young. And I'm like, tomorrow's promise to no one. So I got after half Iron or full Ironman training way over my fucking head. Like it, it was hard, but I, that's when I, you know, that mental toughness was sticking to me from my SWAT boys. And I, I went and did my Ironman in 2007, and that was really the spark where I realized middle of the pack finisher, don't get me wrong, like like middle of the pack towards the rear probably, but I did it. And that was, that was really the first time I experienced personal greatness in my life was when I built my own house. After nine months, I saw this thing that wasn't there before and that almost broke me as a man. And then I did this Ironman and I was, but I was still backing away from the flame, man. I like when discomfort would come, I couldn't lean into it. I, I got to where maybe I could, I could just stand there, but usually I'd back away a little bit. And then two years later, I did another Ironman, um, trained a little different. My, I felt my mind shift slowly shifting a little bit, but it wasn't until like a half, uh, you know, and then, ultra marathon and came and, and that was a perfect storm where a DEA agent I knew I ran into him and he's like, Hey Brett, you want to, you want to pace me at an ultra marathon in Lockport? And 
I said, the only thing I fucking understood in that whole, and the whole conversation, Brian, was Lockport, because that's where I'm from. But I don't know what you mean. Say, like, you run on the canal path, 12 miles out, 12 miles back. And at that time, it was a 24-hour race. And he's like, after the first 25 miles, people can't run with me. And I'm like, yeah, cool, man. And he told me the date, and I had to work that day overtime. And it would have been, in retrospect, it would have been easy to say, well, I have to work till midnight, and I can't get out there. And I'm so glad I, I didn't take the easy way out. And, I, and that's one of my mantras is like, we got to stop saying no. We got to stop saying no to new experiences because those opened so many doors. And that's what this did. And I showed up out there at like two in the morning. And the suffering I saw of these ultra marathoners was incredible, man. I saw zombies, people like walking sideways, and hunched over, and it was raining and it was beautiful. And that's when I, I, I went six and a half miles with that with brian and we walked the entire time and i remember again visions of grandeur right without you know talking out my ass i'm like are we gonna run he's like ah average people like us usually end up walking the second half and in my mind i immediately said i think i could run this whole thing without a shred of proof and uh remember him taking his shoes off at the end his feet were like looked like they were in a meat grinder it was pretty it was awesome to see that he could still move and that following year, I went there and I ran 100 miles. And that was that was when really the floodgates opened. Like that's when I started to really understand mental toughness and like and about not quitting. What changed? What what shifted in your mind from as you as you said, moving away from the flame to finally be able to lean into it? I think I think I finally I finally understood that. It, it, it took a while, but the biggest thing that I took away was I early in my racing, I would look at things and I would say pain often and I would say hurt often. I'd be like, oh, like dying toenails, uh, blisters, chafing between your legs, heat exhaustion, hypothermia, um, all that uh, you know, pure exhaustion, sleep deprivation. I would say this hurt, that hurt, this was painful, that was painful. And I had an aha moment one day where I thought about it like at, at a very deep level that 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 pain is when you crack your your funny bone on a door jam. And I said, what do I do when I do that? I pull it into my body and you rock back and, like in the standing fetal position and you rub it. If you if you bust your toe, you hop around and you sit down and you pull your toe into your center and you rub it you burn your hand you do the same thing i'm like i didn't do any of that so i finally understood man that it was discomfort i'm like so i had this little tiny pain silo in my brain that would overflow when i when i first started getting into it and it would impede me everything hurt now i'm like wait a minute that's not that's not pain that's discomfort and i mentally built this gigantic fucking discomfort silo and i started emptying all that little pain silo into it to where I almost never used the pain silo that I realized that, man, this is bearable. Like I only have 50 miles to go. I only have 12 more hours of running. And I really started like being able to lean into that, into that flame. And the other, the other big thing that propelled me was emotions. When you experience good emotions, when you're training or running, they're easy to use. Like you feel love, you feel joy, you feel, uh, courage, uh, 
happiness. Like those are easy to easy fuel, man. Like someone shows up on a race course cheering you on, someone you love, and you're like, oh man, you start sprinting, and you're like, oh, I, and you feel good for a little bit. But you know, like when when you're doing ultra distance racing, chances are you're going to get more of the flip side of that coin. You're going to get hate and fear, and uh, you're going to get sorrow uh, and all that. And I'm like, how can I use that? Because I feel a lot more of that than I do the others. And that's really where I, where I shifted my, my way of training and racing is now. So when I started feeling those good emotions, I wouldn't run any faster or swim any faster or bike any faster. I would perfectly purpose, purposely try to slow my brain down so I could live in that second and enjoy it for as long as I can. I would maintain my same pace. And I would just try to ride that out, ride every every second, millisecond of those good feelings. And then when the bad ones come, that's when I would go faster. I'd be like, fuck you. Those are little demons telling me to slow down or those are demons getting a blister or a dying toenail. And I'd be like, you're not going to you're not going to keep me down. And then the harder I went, the less it would less painful it would be because I felt like I was winning over those demons. And when I put those two things together. It was incredible. It was it was really what what happened as my first hundred mile race. I finished in uh, twenty one hours, twenty one hours and fifty two minutes. So just under twenty two hours, and everyone's like, "That's awesome!" And the finisher beat me by four hours. He looked like he was running a five k the entire time, and I said, "I didn't know they made humans like that." He looked comfortable. I looked like I was dying. Part of me was dying, um, but I said I didn't know they did that. And then four years later, I went and ran a race in honor of a of a police officer we lost. Daryl Pearson was murdered in the line of duty, and I ran uh, seventeen hours and fifty two minutes, the exact fucking time. Four years later, that the guy I thought was a god had done you know beat me in my first race, and that was like I didn't have gene therapy, I didn't have God didn't give me new lungs or legs. I, I, I discovered discomfort and using bad emotions and started putting that all together. And I was like, holy shit, man. Like that's, that's really where personal greatness still came in fourth in that race. I don't win races. I'm still that gray man, but like inside, like I, I felt it. I just, it was just this level of greatness that I, personal greatness that was just like almost addictive. Well, you mentioned the gray man. That's a that's a, a phrase that I've heard a lot again, especially in the, the special operations community. Um, but I think it's I was telling my son the other day. It's really, I think, a a natural place for a lot of us to be. And the problem is, at the moment, with social media and you know the way that a lot of politicians peacock around at the moment, is it's the opposite of the gray man. It's the look at me generation at the moment. And again, I'm tarring a lot of people with the same brush. <laughs> but when you look at tribal humans, you know, apart from maybe the witch doctor and the chief, everyone else was a member of the community. You know, it wasn't, you know, oh, Steve's got great hair and Sandra's a great dancer. <laughs> you know, we were, all, <laughs> we were all ants working together for the greater good. Um, so talk to me about what Gray Man means to you through your career and then and then walk me through deciding to write the book. So I where I first discovered Gray Man was teaching at the police academy. And there would be, say, 40 recruits, and I call them kids, 40 recruits in there. And after the first maybe two or three weeks, 
I could tell you who the top four were, who the studs were, and I could tell you who the bottom four were who, who needed much work. And those other 32 in the middle, I didn't, I didn't know their names. They all blended together because they weren't shiny objects. And there was, and the funny was the shiny objects were shiny for two different reasons, because some were really good and some were really bad. And I noticed that was a flaw in my teaching. I'm like, just the good people, the really good and the really bad, they're not the ones who, only ones who need help. It's those ones in the middle, the gray man. And I, I swear, like, you know, there's that 80-20 rule, like the, the one economist, I think it was uh, Peretti. And so I, I believe that if you look at society, and I don't care if it's where you work in a, in a fire department, if it's a sports team, if you take all the quarterbacks, starters and, and backups in the NFL, you would have 10% at the top half who are very, very, very good at what they do. You would have 10% at the bottom half that aren't that good at what they do. They still made the NFL, but you know NFL standards are not that good. Then those 80% in the middle. Various shades of gray that you you probably wouldn't even know their names, but my thing was with with the gray man is we're the we're, we're not bad people, man. We drive organizations forward. We're the bulk of the workforce. We're the bulk of the people in a fire department or in a police department. You know, there's only Michael Jordan didn't win championships just because Michael Jordan. There's other people on that team that fed him the ball that were also productive. They just weren't as great as him. So like gray man at first, you know, you would think is a negative connotation, but that's the majority of us. Majorities of us will never be like globally great at what we do, but we try freaking hard, man. And we do the, we do the best we can with what we have. And so that's where, that's where gray man, where I felt my entire life was that guy that was overlooked, no stimulus, just blending together. And, and and so where finally where I finally figured it out was that is that to be great in my own skin was that was truly like what the book is about is is not comparing ourselves to the Joneses or keeping up with this or that. And and we have a problem in society, right? Where where um it's hard for people to be happy for other people. Like it's it, like some it's we're somewhat of a society of one uppers or like it's hard for people to say, "Hey, man, you did a great job." Instead of saying, "Oh, my cousin did that race and he finished like five minutes faster than you," he's like, "I don't, like, I don't, I don't care about your cousin." Like, like, sorry, but I don't. And and so that whole that's a whole premise that we can still feel personal greatness, and it's not at a it's not at a global level. And and I think that I think that once you once you get past that, like once you once you start framing that in in that context. That, that's where you truly don't compare yourself, right? Like my my hundred mile race may be someone else's five k, and it, I, I'm not any greater than you are. But I hate when people look at me and say, "Ah, he's got genes," or "He's he, you know, God gave him this. God didn't give me a gosh darn thing other than you know, put me on this planet." Like anything that that I de- I developed along the way because I started figuring things out that work for me that you know that may not necessarily work for others. When I wrote my book, it was the same kind of philosophy. I wasn't at the World Trade Center or the Vegas shooting or the Notre Dame fire or, you know, the Grenfell Tower fire. I was the other 99% of the fire service that day in, day out, put their uniform on, check their gear 
and responded to calls for 24 hours. And I wanted to reflect that. I mean, had I been to that event, of course, I would have written about that too. But so many of us are the backbone. And I think especially in the fire, so I always find that the phrase like firefighter of the year, a very strange phase, like the best firefighter. Well, they're all out there doing the same job. <laughs> Some of them are even doing it for free. But I agree with you 100%. It's, it's being the best version of yourself is extremely important. But that shouldn't have a barometer against other people. And even if you watch, for example, the documentary, The Weight of Gold, the people that do reach the pinnacle of their sport over and over again, they report that that feeling lasted minutes. And then their identity was questioned because they're like, okay, now what? I am the, <laughs> I'm the world's best pole vaulter, but now what? You know, so I think that that's what I love about you know, the book and the concept that you came up with. I've heard Gray Man as far as blending in, but being okay with that, being proud to be a cog in, in a positive functional machine rather than being, you know, the, the, the centerpiece at the top of it. Yeah, and, and, and let's face it, man, there's only, there's only so many centerpieces, right? And there's, there's always these tons of chairs around them and plates and everything else. And, and again, that's us. I just, um, and I think what also helped me along the way was I, early in my racing, I started raising money for charities and, and, you know, that's another, you know, motivation has become this dirty word nowadays, like, oh gosh, you know, discipline, discipline, discipline. And I, I so discipline trumps motivation, but motivation is beautiful, man. Like when my, that first uh, hundred miler, what happened was that the same officer or the same investigator I told you had Huntington's disease. I knew I was going to grow as a human for running a hundred miles. Like I knew it somewhere along the way, man, I was going to, find a better version of me. I wasn't sure what it was. And I admit I was, I was, I was scared or at least nervous going into it. I knew that, you know, I, I was going to, I was going to die or, you know, try or die. Like I was, it was, I was never not going to finish unless it was catastrophic, but I wanted, I wanted someone else to benefit. So I asked Billy Lawler, I said, Hey man, I want to raise money in your name for Huntington's disease. He's like, yeah, that's cool. And then three weeks later, like, it was just tragedy. There was a Sergeant Billy Mahoney, who just a nicest, like the nicest guy. When he asked you how you were doing, he didn't ask you like as you know, it wrote or like just off the cuff. Like he truly looked in your eyes, man. He wanted to know how you were doing. And he always had this infectious smile, and he he felt run down for a couple months, and almost like he had flu, but without those symptoms. And so finally, one day at work, he checks himself in the hospital. He can't take it anymore. And he's got this weird infection around his heart. And they prep him for surgery and he dies on the table. And I'm talking like 40, uh, leaves behind three kids and a wife. So I was like, oh, gosh, man, I want to raise money for his family, but I don't want to renege on Huntington. So I called it running for the bills, Bill Lawler and uh, Billy Mahoney. And it was, you know, we raised just no social media. I don't. I don't know if social media probably was a thing then. I don't know, but I certainly wasn't on it. But word of mouth, policemen, firemen, 18 grand we raised. And so like that was like, there's no way I was never not going to, not going to finish that race. And his wife, uh, Billy's wife showed up a couple times during the race. Um, and it was just like that motivation of, of finishing. And, and usually every time I do something, you know, I try to include some type of organization. Special Olympics is a really big one for me. I just love, love that such an inclusive organization. We have a veterans outreach center here, uh, which is, is awesome. They have a homeless shelter for vets now. 
just, you know, to get them job skills, incredible organization. I've uh, all in all the time foundation, which uh, was the, so these Navy SEALs that they came up to train in Rochester. And I didn't know, even know who they, no one really told us. They introduced me to these guys with big beards and long hair. And I'm like, who are these dudes, man? The only thing I know is whatever they do, they take their job pretty freaking serious, man, because they had like, they were scary looking. I didn't even know that they, what they were until later. I asked them, they're they're the dev group guys. And I'm like, holy shit. And so we set them up with all these locations to train. And we were the bad guys that got shot up in some munitions. And uh, we go out with them every single night. They would go out and did for dinner and have some beers. And, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't storytell, but they, I was fascinated at how smart they were. And like, they knew something about everything and everything about something like just, it was phenomenal to hear them talk about things. And two of them became like, I became like closer with uh, one guy we call Wemo and the other guy is Tommy Valentine. And then a couple, so then they, they appreciate it so much that I come down to damn that for a week. So we split our teams. We went down alternate weeks, used their facilities, which was cool as hell. They've left a huge like thumbprint on our team to this day for our tactics and the way, the way we train, the way we run operations. Um, it was really incredible. Like we would go training throughout the country and these other, these trainers who also were either SEALs or, or SF guys or uh, Marine Raiders or Rangers. And they're like, Rochester, like, where the fuck do you guys come from? And where'd you learn to do what you do, man? Like, we don't see this except for where we worked. And like, and that was like the highest praise you could get is these guys would be like, Rochester, like, what are you guys, like, how are you doing this stuff as a local part-time SWAT team? And I always thought that was the coolest, like the biggest compliment we could get paid. And unfortunately, Tommy, Tommy died uh, in a halo training out in Arizona. Uh, so his wife started this foundation all in all the time that they provided a uh, gap money, like before the insurance, before the government money came. So paying off, paying car loans, um, you know, mortgages, groceries until, you know, whatever it took some of the funeral costs. So I, like really appreciative. And that, that was like the impetus one day. When I, uh, I, I, I did my fastest hundred mile race we talked about and I was a little banged up, like in the knees, just a little bit. And uh, it was early race. Like I think it was in May and I, I didn't think I wanted to do another hundred miler. And that's when I had this crazy idea that we live by the great lakes and I'm like, you know, there's Navy SEAL. So I'm going to swim across Lake Ontario. One day. I didn't know it was a thing. I just, I live by the lake. I stopped on the ride home one day. I, I relived a moment I had with my best friend who, who was a state trooper who died very young. And it, I'm like, I looked across the lake. You can't, you can't see Canada from where I live. And I'm like, I'm going to swim across this bitch. And I went home and uh, I started doing research. I'm like, it's a thing. Like, well, what do you mean? It's a thing. Like, and it actually, there's a route. It's from Fort Niagara to Toronto. It's 32 miles. I think I was like the 54th or 55th person to do it. And uh, to raise money for Tommy, and uh, like what what was different about that swim than running or doing like an Ironman or double Ironman was, I felt like the water was trying to fucking kill me, like the environment was trying to kill me. So when you're running, and I did this hundred mile in Key West with my son, he, he crewed me. I was boiling, so I jumped in the air conditioned van and I cooled down for five minutes. 
which was the worst. When I got out, I was stiff as a board. I'm like, Zach, don't ever let me do that again, man. This is a horrible idea. Or if you're running, you could sit down for a second and change your shoes. But when you're in that lake water, it just, it's, it's relentless. You have to constantly move. I can't float. And it's just always tugging at you, trying, trying to hurt you in some way. And, you know, I went through bouts of like really cold water, which is unex- not unexplained. People warn me and I'm like, it's a bowl of water, a giant bowl of water. It's all the same temperature. That's not true. So I hit Arctic. I had hypothermia a few times, like literally, you know, pale white, purple, lips quivering, um, hit waves. Then all of a sudden it blew up in the middle of the night when it wasn't supposed to blow up. Um, I ended up getting some type, I'm pretty sure it was probably like a virus or bacteria. I started nonstop diarrhea. I had to swim on like swim trunks around my ankles because I just literally would just can't stop shitting. Um, and then it all kind of happened all at once, all over again. But like ultimately it was like 21 hours and change, man. I reached the other side there. And uh it was it was incredible like to do that for Tommy and his his wife, his widow was Christina was sending me messages along the swim. <laughs> it's pretty damn cool. It's amazing. Obviously, yeah, the, it was like emotions still hitting you now. Oh yeah, yeah, they they do, you know, and uh, like that that up until that point, like that was that was hard. Like that was, you know, shoulders were felt like there was little shreds of of glass in them, and I remember I got done, and like I I don't like naysayers and. Like, he's a really great guy, this doctor I know. He's like, you may have permanent damage. I couldn't lift my shoulders up. Like, I couldn't eat. I had to use, I had to tape a fork to a, I had to tape a fork to a knife to elongate it. And I couldn't get my shoulders up, like, or, you know, I couldn't uh, shave my head. And they they all came back and everything. But it was, uh, like, just, you know, watching, I started at five at night, thinking the lake would be calm. And then watching that moon go across the sky the entire time swimming. And, uh, it was, it was awesome. Like it you know, I look back at it. I'm not sure I would ever do it again, but it was, uh, like that was up until that point. That was, that was just incredible. And for, and like I said, for Tommy, like, you know, it's not just nationally known, um, not for profit. So to, to, to raise that kind of money for those folks, was just, just incredible. So we've touched on the mental health side when it came to, you know, addiction. What about your own journey? I mean, all those years in law enforcement and then the transition out, what were the highs and lows for you personally? Um, I think, I think the transition out was easier for me than most people because once I hit 20 years, we could retire at 20 years and half pay. I love being a cop, man. And the union guys would probably get mad at me, but 90% of the time I felt like they paid me too much money for my job. I had a great job. I loved it. Like, like nobody's business. And then 10% of the time, like you're not paying me enough, Like you're certainly not paying me enough. So when I decided to stay on, I knew I was going to stay for 32 years. Like that's the max you can get for pension benefits. If you stay after 32 years, you're literally working for a couple of dollars an hour because what your pension would be and what they're paying so when I reached 32 years, that was in 2020, like that was a clean separation because that was the end of the, the ultra marathon. Like I crossed the finish line. I was like double middle fingers. Like, man, like I still love coming to work, but I have a lot of shit I want to do in my life still. And 
And I think what it really hit me, and we talk about mental health, was before I retired, like uh, eight months is was my last academy class because they were about a year apart. And a really great guy that I had worked with, Pete Burnett, who was one of he was retired as a commander. One of my mentors is a young sergeant. He taught me how to become a leader. Uh, he put the arm on all these recruits that I had trained and people that worked with me. He bought me this like Garmin Phoenix six watch and like a $900 watch was my going away gift from the Academy. And when I wore it, it measures your stress level. I'm not sure, you know, whether it's correct or not. I still believe it's a baseline. Even if a scale is messed up, if you use the same scale, like it's, it's, it'll tell you if you're gaining weight or losing weight. So I always thought, that I handle stress very well on the job. Like when I stacked up on a door to go through for SWAT after a while, like, you know, it, I think you talked about it in your book is yeah, there may, there may be some, some stress, but you put that to the side so you can do your job. Like you can't, you can't be all stressed out when you're trying to stop a guy who's bleeding out from his femoral artery, right? Like you can't be trying to put on a tourniquet and being all helter skelter and put that to the side and you do your job. And then you, after maybe you think about it, so, you know, it wasn't like I was like in, in fear of my life going through doors and crashing doors. Um, but my watch, when I worked, would be around 40, whatever that means for my stress level, four zero. And then when I got into retirement, it would barely crack the 20s. It'd be in the teens. So I'm like, whatever that measures, I'm only feeling half of it now that I retired. So I, I didn't believe there was any stress and it. I go back to when I worked midnights on the job. I worked midnights for my family and we're not meant to sleep during the day. And when we sleep during the day, we don't sleep as much as we should because, and I got off midnights finally. And my wife's like, thank God you were a fucking asshole. And she's <laughs> like, you were a complete miserable prick. And I didn't know. I'm like, I thought I'm doing great, man. As a dad, as a husband, you know, as a cop. And so I think it was that same thing. Like you don't think you're under stress, but however, there's always that stress, whether it's from the actual job or the administration. So I had, I had a clean, I had a clean break coming through there. Um, I think probably the, in retirement, what, what hit me the hardest so far was that, you know, we had another officer murdered in the line of duty, Tony Mazurkowicz. And he was my age, uh, you know, maybe a year or two younger than me. And when, when we had that, when the police officer, Daryl Pearson was killed eight years before him, um, I was on the job and I was there amongst, you know, amongst the men he worked with because our units were close together. And I, I had that, that circle of, of, of workers around me and coworkers and friends. And I felt extremely sorry for him. But when, when Tony died last year, I had this like survivor's guilt. I'm like, he should be like me retired. He was going to retire in January actually of this year. So he got killed July of last year, six months from when he wanted to retire with 30 years in. And I remember being at the funeral and I was with these guys at my age where we're all retired and reaping the benefits. And I'm like, it was, it was epically sad. And I had guilt that he had died. And then, you know, I don't, I wasn't around my 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 boys and my girls anymore at work so i think it was a little harder to deal with that death also because you know i i have a, a very loving girlfriend and i have sons and i have friends but you know some people you know 
don't understand it as well as as maybe the people you work shoulder to shoulder with. So I, I think that that was that was hard that was hard for me to 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 bear witness to to that death. It's a guy that like you would never he was amongst the chaos, but you would never think he would it was just for some reason when they said he died, I'm like, no, he did. For two weeks, like I, I think I was in denial. I was like, there's there's no way that Tony was killed. Like you just would not believe that Tony could be killed and that he would be killed because it, it was it was it was hard, very hard. Well, this is what's so sad. I think at the moment we're losing so many to, you know, murder aside from obviously by their own hand, which I think is double that figure again. But it, we're losing so many that they just become another another name, another day, you know. But every single one of these people, as you said, some of them were weeks, months, days from retirement. Some of them were weeks, months, days from the academy. They just got on the job. And it's just, it circles back, in my opinion, to this prohibition conversation where I always ask the question, why are the streets of Oslo not filled with gangbangers? You know, why are the are the Norwegian police not walking around like they're in Fallujah? When are we going to have that conversation? It's not just law enforcement's responsibility to, to you know, to not hurt someone when they're restraining them and not pull their weapon at the wrong time. When are we going to talk about why are our fucking streets so dangerous and why are our police officers getting murdered on a daily basis? And it's, you know, you hit on two points, Fallujah and like the apathy nowadays. And so the two, the two officers that were murdered in the line of duty for Rochester were in the same unit, the tactical unit. And it's like, I say that, I'm like, we're not, this isn't Fallujah, man. This is a city in the United States. And you lose two officers in the same unit, eight years apart, something's, something's inherently wrong. And what really bothered me also about Tony Mazurka was being killed is we had somewhat of a yardstick. And you're not going to compare two men who died for their country or died for their community. But like when Daryl died, his story was in the news cycle for months. And part of it was because we had had a, a, a officer killed in the line of duty since the 50s. That was part of it. And back then, eight years ago, people still people loved the cops. So there was fundraisers galore. They he's constantly in the in the paper, in the news. And then when Tony dies last year, it his death dies within a news cycle. I'm looking around for the fundraisers, and they're nowhere near the amount at that time. And you know, part of it it was may have been apathy because he was the second one killed, you know, since the 50s. The other one was there was still all that residual stink from being demonized and vilified, you know, over those last two or three years because of a few fucking criminal cops. And then we all got painted with that same brush and then BLM swept in. And before you know it, everyone hated cops, the people that are there to protect the community. So like that, that like struck me hard, man. And I like, I was mad. I was disappointed uh, that he did not receive that, the, the, the recognition that he deserved for giving his life. And that was the whole, honestly, the whole impetus to me. You know, I just got done with that eight states for mass. And that was the whole reason was to spread the word of Tony's sacrifice and to raise some money and emotional support for his family. Like that, that was it. And the, the whole thing behind it. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it's like being the widow or widower or, you know, the, the, the children of a first responder, especially a police officer who left that family home every day to go serve and protect complete strangers, and then they're killed, and then there's that 
vitriol, you know, toxic nastiness. And rather than at least respectfully honoring that first responder who was killed, there's this anti-police rhetoric that is peddled on so many of our news agencies. And, and the the heartbreak and the, you know, just the, it's disgusting to think that family was the one that sacrifices, we know, alongside us. The family goes through it as well. And that officer didn't leave saying, oh, I'm going to go kill this type of person today. I always say, if you want to do that, then go join an extremist group. That's how you kill people that you don't like. These other people that are first responders, some of them maybe should never have got hired, hence the example you just used. But most of these men and women leave the very nucleus of their world, their wife, their husband, their their children, to go protect other people. number of times that I drove towards a hurricane where it was bearing down on my family home. This is what these men and women do. And so we owe it to them to honor them, remember them, and fucking snuff this anti law enforcement rhetoric because of the you know the the few and like i said it goes back to what we talked about earlier you don't say you know that the prohibition of the war on drugs is working because i tried it the other way once and there were three addicts that didn't work for so we're just gonna no this is this is you know this extreme mentality that we have you have to affect the masses not the extremes and and then i think covid has been a perfect example of when you allow the outside wings to have these these voices the middle normal people lose every fucking time so and, and you know oh, there's so many points there and the, the one is well the big one is so after this this thing for eight states for maz what i thought was a was a huge win is harry smith who who's he's on the today show and he was on national news and he tells these great stories he's the storyteller and he picked up this eight states for mass and he put a great thing together with with the with Lynn, Tony's widow, some of Tony's co-workers. And it and it airs on the Today Show, which most people could say are left leaning, of course, like the folks on there. And there's Harry Smith on the couch with the whole staff or the whole crew of the US of a, of the Today Show. And he shows this, he just did a tremendous job of of explaining how we're how we're human beings behind the shield and how much pain his Lynn is in. And at the very end, he looks at all on the couch and he's like, you know, when these officers are, mur- are murdered in the line of duty or killed, we, we need to stop. We need to stop and pause for a second and think about what had happened and not just let it gloss by. And he's like kind of lecturing these people on the couches. And I was like, maybe this is like part of the turning point. Like maybe this is it where, and they were all nodding their head. And I think, None of them said anything. Said, I think they were all going to cry when they saw this episode. It was so incredible. But the other part of that is when I did this eight stage for Maz, I didn't, I didn't watch any news the entire time. I, so real quick. So eight stage for Maz was Tony Mazurkowitz worked in the tactical unit, which has a, a uh, number designator of eight. So all the units in Rochester have a number. So one day it hits me. I said, I want to do something for him. I want to raise money. I like to run a lot. So in the middle of the night, I wake up. I'm like eight states for mass. I'm going to run through eight states, do a marathon, 26.2 miles a day. Originally, it was 48 days. For 50 days, run from Florida to New York, spread the word of Tony's sacrifice all along the way, and raise money for the family. So what I tell people is I met hundreds and hundreds of so many kind decent, caring, generous, 
law-abiding, law-supporting folks. I met the fabric of America at the ground freaking floor. And it's beautiful. And like the amount of people that gave me their last dollars to give to the family, the people, the strangers that hugged me and offered condolences for a man they never, ever met, Tony Mazurkowitz, a hero, was just incredible. Like it was, it, I left there, I left Florida and, and, Admittedly, a cup half full kind of guy. I've always tried to keep a positive outlook. I always look on the on the on the better side of things. I finished with a cup runneth over type of attitude by the time I got done. Because I'm like, regardless of what we see, and, it's, and like you had touched on, it's the fringes, man. It's the fringes on both sides of the aisle. The big loudmouths that get the most press, the most social media attention, trying to push their distorted views on the rest of us. But we're the super majority, man. We still are. And we won't let them change our way of life. And I tell two stories. And, and I mean, I have hundreds of stories from this run. But real quick, two ones. Is I'm in, I'm in Ed, Ed Ray, West Virginia. And for some reason, in West Virginia, there's a church about every, I don't know, every 200 yards. I'm like, there's a lot of religious people in West Virginia. Like, So during the week, we would park in the church parking lots. Every three miles, I would have to get something to eat or drink and then go on my merry way till the marathon was done. So I, I'm doing the pee run. Like I'm almost peeing my pants. And I'm like, Oh man, they in a pickup truck. I'm like, please don't be in a church parking lot. And I round the corner and there he is right in the church parking lot, right in the middle of it, no cars. <laughs> and I see this old couple like, yeah, I'm like, gosh, and I'm like, God's going to be mad at me now. And so I see this elderly couple, they're in their mid eighties trying to get in the front door of the church. And you could tell they couldn't get in because they were kind of frail. So I was going to help them, but they finally got inside. So I get my Gatorade. I'm like, Jay, man, I got to pee. So I get on the other side of the truck. You know, I'm, I'm like, please, God, forgive me, man. I, I just got to go and pee my pants. So I go next. I, I I run off. I have this three and a half mile mountain climb up this giant mountain, like just relentless. And as Jay's getting ready to leave, the lady comes out. Her name is Jean. And Jean says, it'd be rude if I didn't come out and say hello to you and invite you in our church. And so Jay knew he had 30 minutes to kill before he needed to see me. So he goes inside. They're really proud that they just restored this church back to his late 1800s grandeur. One of the parishioners who had recently passed away hand-painted the mural on the ceiling to replicate how it was. And they were just so proud of this church. So then she asked, she asked Jay, like, what are you guys doing here? Like, what, what are you guys, what's going on? He, he tells her of eight states for mass. So she reaches into her purse and she pulls out three tri-folded $5 bills. And I remember my gram used to keep her money that way, like neatly tri-folded in her little satchel. And she pulls out three of them and puts it in Jay's hand, clutches his hand shut and says, this is all the money I have. I wish we had more to give to the family. So Jay tries not to take the money. And Bob's like, hey, Bob stands up 85 years old. He's like, listen, I've been trying to argue with Gene for the last 60 years, man. (laughs) Not going to work. Like... Gene's not going to take, no, take the money, son. And so then Gene hugs, Gene hugs uh, Jay, you know, blesses him for safe travels on the remainder of the marathons and tells him to bless me. So like, you know, that's the fabric of America. So now I'm three miles up this hill and I'm, I'm literally barely holding my own. My legs are full of lactic acid. My lungs are burning. I'm like, I'm pissed. And I meets me on the side of the road and I start drinking my Gatorade. And he tells me this story. And I'm like, oh, my God. Tears start welling up my eyes. 
I slam my Gatorade down. I start sprinting. He's like, where are you going? I'm like, to the top. And I sprinted that last half mile. And when I usually went up these giant climbs, like they would beat me up pretty good. And, and I would get emotional. And at every climb, I'd get to the top when I knew I was at the top. Because a lot of times, they're just switchbacks. And I'm like, I made it. And I'm like, oh, this bitch won't let me out. Now another switchback, another one. When I finally knew I was on the top, I would usually do double middle fingers. I'd be like, you know, I would just scream like, fuck you. You can't keep me down to the mountain. And this time I remember not doing that, but just thanking God for Bob and Gene and thanking God for all the people that are like Gene and Bob in this, in this country that understand right from wrong and honoring heroes and giving, giving of themselves for someone they don't know. And it was just incredible. And the other story real quick was, I mean, all we were in Elkins, West Virginia, about 125 miles down the road. And I was with two different guys helping me. They had worked with Tony. They were good friends with Tony. And they're like, let's go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. And the one dude's like 400 pounds on with like 350. He looks like a linebacker. He can he can literally eat nonstop. The other guy ran, who, who was a Greg Walsh protege, who hates running. And I call him my surrogate son. His name's Matt Pataki. He ran an entire marathon with me that day, and he's not a runner, and he hates running. But he's like, I'm going to just do it because I can, which he did. So he's starving, and me, I'm burning 6,000 calories a day. So I felt bad when we decided to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet because I'm like, we're going to bankrupt these poor people. Like, they're going to have to go – they're going to go under or go out and get new supplies. We walk in the door. There's this nice lady behind the counter. We pay her, and and I find out she's just not the, the cashier, but she's the waitress. She's at times the dishwasher and she's actual owner of the place trying to keep it afloat during like super tough times. So we're eating. She comes over every five minutes, gets the dirty plates, makes small talk. Super nice. Finally. Hey, what are you guys doing here with our, with your strange New York accents in West Virginia? And I tell her about eight states from ass. And I tell her about Tony, like not how he died as a hero, but how he lived as a hero as a father, a, a husband, a grandpa, a brother, a son, a great street cop, how he didn't need to be in that unit. He could have retired on duty, could have put his feet up at some desk somewhere and just rode his career out, but wanted to be amongst the chaos, wanted to train the younger officers on how to do the job right. And her eyes start welling up. She reaches into her food stain apron, pulls out all the tips she made that day, $9. It's like, here, you take all my tip money. I wish I could give you more, but I don't have any more. Gave me a hug. That's the fabric of America. It's alive and well. You know, sometimes I learned that very true lesson that sometimes when you give, man, you give, you get so much more back when you never, ever expect it to be. I didn't have expectations going into these runs other than I was going to raise money for the family. But like it, it changed my life. Like I, like I said, I'm a cup runneth over guy. Like I saw the fabric, and it's freaking beautiful. I've had this echoed so many times with people that have done events that have taken them over a long way. There's a guy, he was on um, TV several years ago now, Leo, Leo, Leon, Le, oh my goodness, Leon Logothetis is a, a Greek last name, but he was the, the kindness diaries, the, the kindness guy. And he went from, I mean, literally through countries relying solely on the kindness of others and it was it was you know a kind of pilgrimage slash test 
but he was able to document all these complete strangers, this weird Englishman going through their country and, and helping them. Um, another guy, Paul Harris, such as how is a Royal Marine who walks all the way around the British Isles, the entire perimeter. And now as we speak, he pulled finished it and was like i think i'm gonna walk back and he's he's reversed <laughs> reversed it absolute lunatic but it, these people all say the same thing over and over and over and over again the hospitality the community the love these are the british people these are the american people and this is what drives me crazy is we these extremists that we allow to have seats in the white house both fucking you know last administrations for example these divisive things they're speaking they have no they have no right to speak for us the middle 80 whatever percent of normal people that are just trying to you know put a roof over our, our families heads foods in their stomachs clothes on their back and just live together and educate our children and and you know empower our, our first responders to be the best version of themselves and protect their communities and you know hope advocate to only send our children to war if it's absolutely necessary but if that's the case to to give them all the training and equipment that we need i mean there's so many middle-of-the-road common sense conversations you know not having an obese nation fighting to get the health back you know, addressing the mental health crisis these are community-based altruistic principles that are discarded by these extremes and i agree with you 100 percent. the storytelling needs to be that the average american the average englishman or, or woman or you know whoever you want to describe the community of a country are good good people and we the masses in the middle need to reclaim that narrative and fucking knock these pieces of shit <laughs> out of these spotlights that are projecting their opinions that basically a vast majority of people disagree with from both sides yeah and it's you know you you, you know and not to get on the politician bashing anymore when you go into politics and you come out a couple of years later as a millionaire who, who are you serving you serving yourself like how do you become a millionaire when you went in there without a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out then you look at covid for example how did our, our country miss the boat on the prime the prime thing for COVID should have been, hey, we need to get healthy as a nation. Like, how did we miss that? You tell, I just read, I read a book and, and I'm reading it now and there's some studies in there and they're like, the 63% of, of people hospitalized could have been changed through, just through diet, not even exercise. If people just changed their diets. And I'm like, how did we not make that the priority of COVID to make our country healthier? And there wasn't any mention. It was the, the mention of just get the shot and it'll be fine. When what's the long term of that? And it's like I I was so mad. Like every day I, I'm like, somebody please champion this cause. Like who's got a voice? Who's got a real voice? And not not one person, you know, of of substantial, you know, uh, notoriety was like uh, other than you know people like like you and like us. Who, who, but we don't have we don't have audiences of, of millions and zillions of people is man, let's just get healthy. Let's just, let's just exercise. Let's, let's do this smart thing. And there's a guy, and I think Greg, maybe Walsh talked about having him on was Tyler uh, Mitten. Who's a nutritionist. Um, I follow him on Instagram. He's an ex USC fighter. And who's like wickedly smart, but, 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 but for me, dumbs it down to where I can understand. And my, my favorite thing of his is, if your dog was overweight, what diet would you put them on? 
question mark. He's like, there is no diet. You would feed them less and walk them more. And I'm like, that's the key to it. Like, I remember a, a guy at work once, he was getting ready for his wedding. He's, he was obese. And he goes, hey, Sarge, like, I really need, like, like the top secret thing for losing weight. Like, I know there's, like, just, like, a gimmick, like, a, a secret thing. And can you just tell me? And I'm like, eat less, work out more. Like, it's a, it's a, def- it's a deficit thing. And he's like, no, no, seriously, like what, like what else? And I'm like, there's nothing else. There's, there's nothing else. There, there, it just doesn't exist. And people think, you know, now we, we want to buy everything or we, it's the me now thing. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to earn it. I don't want to know about six months from now. I want to lower my cholesterol today. So I'm going to take this medicine and I, I want my arthritis to go, or I want my inflammation to go away. So I said, I'm working on it. I want to take ibuprofen and like I said, it's, it's the me now generation across the country, but to miss it during COVID was so it's sad. It's sad because COVID really didn't change anything other than it, it probably divided us more because of either the mask issue or, and, or the jab issue. And instead of bringing us together under one common theme of, of healthy America, missed it. Yeah. I said this right from the beginning and and like everyone else of course we were looking like what is this thing that's supposedly sweeping across the nation first you know a couple of weeks or so okay this could be really bad and you know so i think everyone wherever they stood pretty much everyone said at the beginning we took it seriously and then as the you know two three weeks you start hearing how it actually is in china italy wherever it was you're like okay you know this seems like these numbers actually aren't as bad as you think and so when that first hit, I was hearing this extremist, you know, polarity. And so I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to do an extra episode every week and find more middle of the road experts so that when people are sitting in their house, maybe just maybe they'll turn on behind the shield and listen to this nutritionist or this strength coach or this doctor who actually is standing in the middle, you know, and, and but it was the same thing. And not just the, the, the nutrition side, but the environment. Mother Nature was like, let me show you how I can heal. And everyone was like, oh, that's amazing. And fuck you, Mother Nature. And then gloves and you know what I mean? It went the polar opposite. But the two sides, and I always said this, all right, say you are pro-vaccination. Your body's ability to take that vaccine and turn it into an immunity in your body depends on the health of your human body. If you don't want to take a vaccine, your ability to stave off the virus depends on the health of your body. So the only truth of that whole year was let's make people as mentally and physically healthy as possible. And we came out the back end of that. Obesity had got worse. Mental health had got worse. They're still cutting PE programs in schools. They're still serving shitty processed food to our children. So it was never about health. You cannot look me in the fucking eyes and say it was about health because you, as you said, disregarded the most unique, amazing opportunity of focus where everyone's eyes were on a screen to educate and empower people to take control of how they eat, how they move, their time in nature, their mindfulness practice, their understanding of community and family, and you fucking destroyed everything. And you said, stay in your house, we're going to close all the things that actually make you healthy. We're going to send <laughs> fast food and alcohol to your house while you watch Tiger King. I mean, you could not, if you and I wrote down, how would you fucking destroy a country in five easy steps? Exactly what happened during COVID is what you would do. 
and the polar opposite of what needed to happen. Let the people who are healthy keep the country running, protect the people who are truly vulnerable, and educate people on all these things so you can empower them to work on their own health as we're navigating this crisis. Yeah, and you just got to you gotta hope sometime it, 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 it you know, comes to the forefront. But, you know, now I guess we're talking coming into the fall, there are like more vaccines, uh, different variants, this and that. And, you know, again, I like to be the, the cup half full guy, but I think if it hasn't happened yet, I'm not uh, – <laughs> I'm not super confident that it's going to, you know, and I'm, I'm fairly sure that, you know, America as a majority are, are kind of, are definitely over the lockdowns are over um, the isolation. And, you know, you look back on it and, and you, you had mentioned like history's not going to, we're not going to look finally upon the people that let people die, you know, alone in nursing homes, or you couldn't visit your, like people are going to look kindly upon those people. And, you know, and, and now, you know, now these people are cut, you know, and I love like the hypocrisy of it is, is really what kills me. Like if and you, there's this one on Twitter and I think he's on um, the Defiant L is uh, is on, on Instagram also. And it just shows the hypocrisy usually of like, you know, people with big mouths, whether they're politicians or movie stars or et cetera, or, or work for the government and how like just like they're, they're basically like you take the, you take the shot or you don't deserve healthcare. Then two years later, they're like, we don't need government interfering with our lives. It's like, wait a minute, man. Mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Two years ago, you said we shouldn't get healthcare if you didn't get the shot. And uh, it's just, I, I think we are definitely, I think the, and I use this analogy, like when it comes to our health is I get frustrated sometimes and you, you walk around a supermarket or Walmart and like 10 years ago, we didn't have those scooters. Right. And those scooters, for some people, you got a knee surgery you're coming off of. Um, you know, they're great for some folks. But I, where the slippery slope is, you know, it's called I call it father time. So the first time you walk into that and you don't you don't necessarily like without those scooters 10 years ago, you still got groceries. Right. There wasn't Instacart. and all. You still had to go and force yourself to walk around the store, pushing a cart and getting your groceries and coming home. And so I, I think where father time is really like where you have to watch with folks is the first time you decide to get in that scooter because of laziness, because of convenience, or the first time you do your Instacart order because of laziness or convenience, then it becomes, now it becomes your modus operandi. Like that's what you do every day. Now you go use that cart and that's less steps you're putting in. That's less output you're putting in. And it's that slippery slope. And I, 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 I use that with, with, people all the time like when you when you blow off i get it you're tired one day maybe you don't want to work out but when it turns into two days or three days and that slippery slope and father time's behind you laughing the entire way taking a little bit of your fitness and i think what i think my like one of my biggest messages nowadays is when you stop doing hard shit you stop becoming hard it's that simple you stop running you you lose cardiovascular endurance when you stop lifting weights you aren't as strong. And so when you stop doing hard shit in your life, whatever that may look like for you, you stop becoming a hard person. And like it pays to be a hard person. It really does for every facet of your life to get you through challenges. And I, I was on with this guy the other day and he's like, what's your, uh, he's like, if someone's struggling, you know, whether it be addiction, mental health, marriage, financial, I'm like, it depends on what, what, the struggle is, 
but you just need to make it to the next second. For me, when I was running from Florida up here, I had to make it to the next telephone pole. That was always my goal when I started to get like strung out and worn out. And I'm like, you you just have to make it to the next second and put 60 of those together for a minute and then put 60 of those together for an hour and make it to the next day and just keep chipping away at it because eventually the tides do turn. If you put your work in, if you, if you, if, if you will it to happen, um, and you and you want to make it happen bad enough, things change in your life for the positive. And so I, I I just say like you have to you have to be willing to do hard things, working out when you don't want to work out, or squeezing in a, a gym session when you know you're feeling tired or you find an excuse not to. And I, I always think of Father Time, man, because I know he's like he's probably staring at you right now, James, behind me, and like that dude's always lurking, and he, and he, and he's sneaky, he's, he's really sneaky about it. Yeah, he's looking at Leo Amigo, and they've been sitting down for almost three hours. So I'm going to fuck up their back. <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. Well, I want to hit one more area, and then go to some closing questions. Um, you mentioned Greg Walsh, Wolf Brigade, talking about hard things. I, I absolutely am loving his programming. I'm actually testing it. I've got a firefighter-based fundraiser fitness competition in a couple of weeks, and all I've been doing is the strongman class that I coach, which I also participate in every week but then the wolf brigade programming so you know the turkish get-ups and the mace and all these new movements and and so many hollow rocks like my abs are starting to really come back again um <laughs> but i'm excited to test it out because that's what i do like i don't train for a race i've all right fitness you know are you good or are you not and it's a it's a because i'm not competitive in that race i use it as a testing ground talk to me about how you came across wolf brigade greg and and how that um, served you as far as your endurance side and or your ability to be a tactical athlete in uniform? So it really came with um, my first like immersion into that was through Mapataki, who was on our SWAT team. He's, he's still on the team, um, you know, much younger than me. And he's been with Greg since Greg opened Wolf Brigade in this tiny, you know, in the original spot, which is, I don't know, like 400 square feet of, of space. And I, I would I would always catch Matt, like even through the academy, like when he through PT sessions, that guy was as stoic as you could be, never showed anything on his face. Then when we got done with hard things, he would, you know, he would stand straight up. And I started once he got on the team after that, I started picking up these things from him and asking, like, like, where did you learn this? And he'd be like, you know, you got to no hands on knees, no defeated posture, stand up. Like you're going to like act like you, like you can, and you will have to do it again. And like, that was a thing that I never really taught in the Academy until I started learning that from Matt that came from Greg. And so then Greg would come to our SWAT schools at times and he would, he would uh, like run our recruits through certain uh, skill-based, you know, things that he, that he would do at his gym. And then, all for free because Greg's a great guy and then he would like he's so detail oriented and he sees he sees things that most people cannot see as a trainer and he's able to connect dots that I don't even know are there and then he would give us a list of like this is what uh, SWAT recruit so-and-so needs to work on this is what SWAT recruit needs to work on for him and I was like oh gosh like how did he see this like he's he's literally I, I call him like a mad scientist because he sees that things that I can't. And then eventually three years ago, I went to what they call convergence, which is like the first week in June. It's a two day uh, training session at Wolf Brigade. And I'm like, there's people here from England. 
Like there's people here from all over the country. I'm like, what? Like, I, I didn't realize how influential Greg was at his training. And I, I always hit it off with Greg. Um, I kind of always understood his mindset because at times I could be like not too flexible on, on certain things. It, but what Greg's never flexible on is like never sacrifice speed, you know, never sacrifice form for speed. Like it's not, you know, correct form. And I, I was deadlifting at the time before I met Greg and like, gosh, I can't believe I didn't blow my, my vertebrae out, you know, and he corrected all of that for me. Then I got in the mace. I bought my mace the first year there and to really see, you know, and I follow him obviously on Instagram and his, his mindset and his training. And, and what he talks about is like the minimal effective dose that every day you don't need to corkscrew yourself in the ground where then it becomes more of a liability where you can't, you can't function the rest of your day or whatever you're truly training for. So you're, you're, you're a fire, you're a fireman or a policeman, but you're training so tremendously hard that it impairs you to do your duty later that day. And he trains very smart, very hard. So I, I would never take it as being easy, um, especially their conditioning part of it, but truly that he is, he is one of the world's best. And I, and I didn't say that lightly, Strength and conditioning in the entire world, man. He's in Rochester, New York, which I feel so grateful for. And uh, and the people you go in there, it's incredible. Like guys and girls, I call them the superhumans because you would never believe that these average folks can move the weights as they move. Whether it's whether it's traditional barbell lifting, deadlifts, bench press, or if you're talking about uh, kettlebells or Turkish get ups or flipping, you know, 600 pound tires. Um, it's incredible. Like I, I, anytime I go there, literally my jaw is open and I'm like, I didn't know they could build people like this. And these people didn't go in there. These aren't gifted athletes. These aren't like, you know, tier one guys, uh, or like, you know, people that were division one standouts in college. So I, I think and what he really, what, what best exemplifies Greg is Matt Pataki. So Matt Pataki, when I retired, he told me he read he uh, told me he read a book about a Navy SEAL, and at the very end, the Navy SEAL said, "If you want to learn something about yourself, just go walk around for a full day. Don't stop moving." And I I'm like that that's kind of interesting. And I I you know I did races, obviously like hundred mile races, but it was COVID when I retired. So I said, Matt, you told me about that book, which he didn't remember, and I I said, let's do wandering the earth. And he, uh, he's like, what's that? I'm like, we're just going to go off for 24 hours and we're just going to go running, walking. We'll keep moving. He's like, yeah, cool. I'm with that. Didn't train. We went like 84 miles. His, his feet were broken. His ankles were broken. Like he was beat up at the end, but never once did he ever show it in his face. He just kept moving the entire time. And then three months later, I don't think he was healed. He was, he was mad. We didn't make a hundred miles. At the 50 mile mark, we were like, eight, nine hours in. He said, oh man, we're going to go way over a hundred. And to myself, I'm like, no, look, this is when the wheels come off, dude. Like this is where it's going to get really freaking hard. And it did. So he calls me up three months later. Hey man, I want to get a hundred miles. And like, all right, come out to my house. And that dude ran, he ran a hundred miles in the same time I ran my, did my first hundred miles and he never trained. And it was all the mindset that he got out of Wolf Brigade and their program, which I said, those people at Wolf Brigade could do whatever the fuck they want when they want to do it because that's how they're built. They will never, ever like quit 
They're never scared of things. And they can just do what they want because of the way of Greg's programming. So I, I, I hope I hope you see that same success, man, because you're, you'll be in the superhuman category then, my man, James. Yeah, and I'm I'm literally just dipping my toe in the water at the moment. So I'm I'm excited to get deeper into it. And I've actually got Heather McAllister coming on, I think, in a couple of weeks as well. So we'll get to tell that whole story again. She's one of the superhumans. And uh, she's certainly one of the superhumans there. And uh, the, the amount like that she could like, you know, back squat a, uh, a kettlebell that weighs like one point, like 1.25 times her body weight. And to get it into that position is, is just incredible. And it's all about detail. That's what it is. It's really attention to detail and the bracing involved in it. And uh, Greg's a master. Like I, he's just, he's truly, truly a, a master of his craft. Absolutely. Well, I want to go to some closing questions quickly and I can let you go. We've been chatting for well over two hours now, so I want to be mindful of your time. The first one I love to ask, well, firstly, we, we talk about your book. So, so Gray Man is the title of your book. For people listening, where can they find that? Um, that's right on Amazon. That's the uh, only places available, Amazon. So the funny part is when I wrote Gray Man, An Average Man's Journey to Personal Greatness, that's when the Gray Man like, series came out with that dude with blonde hair. So there's like 87 novels of Gray Man, but there's been like enough sales where you can get it like within the first 10 or 12 books when you search Gray Man. Perfect. Yeah, that's the problem. I think I was lucky. My my one, there's a song, which I use the, the song as my title, but um, there's no books, which is it's kind of bizarre, but there's no books named the One More Light. So uh, yeah. I lucked out there. Um, all right. Well, speaking of books then, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, I think the one that I thought was very interesting, I read it years ago, is called Diet Cults. And it's by Matt Fitzgerald. And it's really cool. He goes through all of what I would call the fad diets, whether it's Atkins or vegan or the raw diet, the paleo diet. And in it, he breaks down like kind of what the diet is in a success story. Like, oh, Joe Schmo lost 37 pounds in six weeks. And then he breaks down like what's wrong with those diets. Like, you know, that 80% of the people on the, uh, Atkins diet thinks they can eat chicken wings and steak and their cholesterol level went through the roof, you know, and we were born to eat carbs. So it's, it's just not sustainable. And so he goes through all the pros and cons and most of them are our cons. Then at the very end, he like, he, he does the common sense thing. The diet that works for you is the one that's sustainable and makes you healthy. He misses, I think a little bit, and he calls it the agnostic diet. Um, I don't think like his, his recommendations for like tier one foods, like the ones you must, must have aren't the same as mine. Um, he puts like a meat, like is tier two proteins that you, you should have, but don't necessarily need to have. I think like I do eat a lot of like, whether it's chicken, pork, beef or venison. Um, but all in all, he's like, it comes to that common sense realization that the diet that works for you, that keeps you lean and healthy and that's sustainable for the rest of your life is the, the diet you should be on. And uh, it's just a, it's a fascinating book into into the the, the the diet fads of the last probably twelve years. It's interesting when you take a step back and go, okay, so telling us all that we should eat thing X, if that truly worked, then you tell an Australian Aboriginal that they should eat like an Inuit. You know that it's it, it's going to apply to to you know what you've been brought up in, and there's there's of course 
some sort of genetic element to it as well. So people of certain bath backgrounds are going to tolerate maybe fish more than others or grains or whatever it is. But I think the one common denominator in most of these is just take processed shit out of your diet. If you want to be vegan, you want to be omnivore, you want to be carnivore, if the common denominator is you take anything processed and ground to a dust out, you're going to have success. And then you can kind of titrate to effect and see what works best for you. Yeah, and based on, you know, your, like I said, your, how you were brought up. Like, you know, it's like telling an Italian person, you can't eat pasta. Well, guess what? Like my girlfriend, she has like sauce Sunday, right? And that's how she was brought up, you know? And and, and so to, to recommend something outside of someone's like, either either their upbringing or their culture is just ridiculous but there's there's enough good food in all of that to make it work and you know and and my other thing is like i don't i don't say cheat days but if i want to have a thing of ice cream i have a thing of ice cream i don't have it every night and i realized that you know maybe you know the 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 side effects of it but i'm still having ice cream so i'm not you know I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna live like a like a caveman because we're we're in the you know the 21st century now so exactly well that was the book what about movies and documentaries any of those that you love um the the one i just saw well the one that got me started on this was called uh running on the sun and it was when Badwater 135 uh that raced through death valley which i did out of back maybe uh five six years ago i my my wife at the time brought that home and i was like what the hell? And again, the suffering is what drove me to it. And back then it was easy to get in. Now it's like super competitive. It took me a, a couple of years to get in, but I saw it. And like what you saw, these people turning themselves inside out was just incredible. Yeah. You know, their stick to itness and mental toughness before that was even a thing. Like it ultra racing wasn't even, a, wasn't even on the map at that time. There's, you know, only a handful of these people was incredible. And then I just saw another one. Um, it was, uh, just one mile and it's Chad. Um, no, I can't think of his last name. Is that Chad, the, Na- thought, the Navy seal? Yeah. That guy, okay. crazy, crazy little guy with a huge beard. And it's this race in Tennessee. You've never heard of where basically it's one mile with a pretty substantial elevation up and down. You get 20 minutes to do each mile and you stay until the last man's there. And it was, it was, it was interesting to see. Like you knew when the people checked out, man, like when they were in the process of checking out, you saw it in their faces, you saw it in their actions. And uh, it was interesting because I don't, I don't know if you, if people fully realize when they're starting to check out, that's what they're doing. And it was, I, I really, I really enjoyed that on like many different levels of, of watching the, the, the cast of characters, so, so to speak in there. And they're, you know, the, probably their ultimate demise, uh, where they were like, again, mentally, they were just like, man, like, uh, this is it. And it was, it was like that suffering also was incredible. And, it's, and so it was like, it, you know, it was like this one off documentary. I think it might have been on, I think Netflix now. Um, but yeah, that, that was interesting. And so Chad Wright, I think I got that right with the double. Chad Wright, yes. Yeah. Chad with two Ds, yes. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. All right. Well, then the next question, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I would, I would probably go back right now to that uh, Tyler Mitten, who's his, who the, he's the nutritionist. Um, he's, he just he spoke 
actually he came up on his own dime. That's how great of a guy he is to, to convergence this year. You know, Greg can't afford to bring him in and pay him like, and he came in on his own and he spoke like the last, he spoke for like a half an hour and incredibly engaging. And uh, like, I just love his common sense approach. But if you want to talk about like, you want to get into nerd stuff, like into the weeds, he can get in the weeds like nobody, like he's smart as a whip when it comes to it, but he can also, you know, he can also transfer that knowledge that's easy for us to understand. And it's, it's almost so commonsensical that you're like, gosh, man, like this guy should, this guy should be everyone's nutritionist in the world. And, you know, he's not a radical in any means about anything. And what I took away the, 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 the thing I took away the most, I think was he's like, you eat three different ways. You either eat to be healthy you eat to perform or you eat to look good. And all three of those are different. You can't, you can't do them in combination. And I was like, I never knew that. I'm like, wait a minute. You can't like, it's weird. And I think about my fueling is, you know, if I'm coming up on a big race or if I'm trying to like slim down or I'm just in this period of eating healthy. And he's like, those are three different, entirely different ways to eat and, you know, to track your eating. And I was like, that's something I never, ever knew. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting when you when you talk to you know strongman competitors or you know world strongest man or um, you know the bodybuilding community or even some of these actors that had to get into a certain shape for a role, and they're all like, yeah, and then I then I had to go on a road of getting healthy. They look great on film, but they were actually yes. were extremely unhealthy. Or they hit a PR and lifted something no one's ever lifted before, but then I had a one-way, you know, one-year journey to try and get away from strokes and heart disease before they dropped dead like a lot of their fellow competitors do. I, ne- I never knew that, man. It was like, it was super enlightening. And, uh, you know, I actually, uh, I know Matt Pataki, the, the guy I talked about, Greg, he's actually hiring him or has already as his nutritionist and uh Anyone who does with him, man, they're like, they're like, he's just a great guy to work with in a, in a vein. He puts a, his, you know, obviously his personal touch on everything. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what you do to decompress? I, I think it's for the most part, my, my big decompression is in the fall. Like I, my, my number one passion and most people don't even know about it is I, I'm a, I'm a, a bow hunter of deer and I own 57 acres, my own property. And my life revolves around the deer season and all year long, like in the, in the summertime, I'm planning in the spring, I'm planning my food plots for the deer. And then I also put them in, in the fall, then you're trimming lanes and then you're putting your time into the, in the actual stand. I hunt about eight hours a day. And that's truly like, that's true decompression, like four hours in the morning, four hours at night, no phone, don't pick up the phone to get on social media and like one with the woods and to really think about that. That's three months allows me to think about the last nine months and then the, the upcoming nine months and what like I kind of want out of this life and, you know, in all aspects of it, um, out of, you know, interpersonal relationships out of you know where I want to travel, what I want to see, what I want to do. And that's, that's truly it. And the other one is, is honestly when I when I run, um, which is you know and or swim, it's just that time alone with your thoughts. It's uh, it's it, yeah. I always find that very reflective, more reflective than probably any other thing that I do. Did you race your kids at a five k and whoop their ass just to pay them back? 
So I made a promise. Yeah, I, I, they've never beat me since. And we've raced against each other. And I'm like, no fucking way, man. And you know why? Because on the ride home, James, they made a fucking song. They're like, we beat that. Or a chant, we beat that. We beat that. And I remember like, they were so proud of themselves. But I was like, you will never freaking beat me again. Never, ever. And I have a thing up on the board out there. And I have like, we all did a race, a couple races, and I, I don't know, I ran like twenty one oh nine, and I'm like house champion, and it's still the fuck up on his whiteboard. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. My my son got into track and cross, so he whoops my ass, you know, running like hands down. Like I ran with him. I actually getting back into to specifically running so I can keep running with him because I love doing it, but. We ran a while ago, and I was, you know, pretty gassed. And he was like, "I was like, yeah, that was that was awesome, though, wasn't it? That was that was a tough workout." And he goes, "Uh, yeah, that was my easy day today." I'm like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> so yeah, he runs. I forget. He runs a five minute mile, and I forget what his five k is. But you know, yeah, he's. I'm. I'm never, oh, never gonna be able to catch him, and nor do I care anymore. So I just keep doing jujitsu. So when I get hold of him, I can choke him out and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tap out, son. Who's your daddy? All right. Well, then, for people listening, we talked about the book being on Amazon. Where else can people kind of find out more about you? Reach out to you on social media on the internet. Yeah, so I'm I'm on both um, Instagram, uh, well, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as uh, as Brett Sobreski, which is S O B I E R A S K I, and uh, then I'm also at uh, it's Gray Man. Uh, inc.org uh, grayman that's my website for the uh, mostly for the book so it, uh, those would be the best places brilliant well brett i want to thank you so much i want to thank greg for for um connecting us as well but it's been an amazing conversation we've gone all over the place from swinging maces to drug prohibition <laughs> and everything in between but uh yeah i mean i want to thank you so much for sharing your journey sharing your time and being so generous and coming on the podcast today you're a good man man i appreciate it i, I loved every second of it man it's you've been great talking to you